John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old, and this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap, or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. Hi, this is Steve. So... It took a bit of doing, but we finally got the team back together, which means that animator and comic book artist Stephen B. Jones and actor, writer, and geek buddy Shannon McClung will be back on the mic for part two of The Untouchables. Now, there's some absolutely gorgeous sequences in the second half of this amazing film, including what is arguably one of the most beautifully composed and choreographed pieces of suspense and action in the history of cinema. And if you can't figure out what I'm referring to, Picture a train station, a set of steps, a baby carriage, and a whole lot of slow motion. Still doesn't ring a bell? Well, if that's the case, it seems to me you're going to have to watch this film. And the best way to do that is to head to cinephiles.net, where you can buy or stream The Untouchables along with every other movie we've ever reviewed. And if you happen to support the show on patreon.com slash thecinephiles, right now you could be listening to a cinephile short on different movements in world cinema, including Italian neorealism, the French New Wave, and even German Expressionism. So that's international film movements this week on Patreon, and The Untouchables Part 2 with special guests Shannon McClung and Stephen B. Jones this Friday on The Cinephiles. I have forsworn myself. I have broken every law I swore to defend. I have become what I beheld, and I am content that I have done right. Now, that man must be stopped, and you must... I'll be the judge of what I must do, Mr. Ness. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hey, everyone. My name is John Rook. I'm a writer, producer, and host for the Outlaw Nation and co-host of this show and a voiceover guy and a big fan of mob movies. So I'm, I'm excited to be back for a second part of this. I'm glad we got to a second part, Steve. There have been some uh, bumps on the way to make this happen, and I'm glad we're all back together to do it again. Listen, taking down a big mob boss never goes smoothly. There's always going to, you know, and I'm just happy we didn't lose anyone along the way because we have, yeah. <laughs> we're once again joined by animator and comic book artist Stephen B. Jones. Steve, welcome back. Hi, thanks for having me back. 
<laughs> and also, he sounds so enthusiastic. And also, actor, r- animation writer, and of course, geek buddy Shannon McClung. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Yeah, like we didn't we didn't lose anybody along the way, but Steve 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 Jones sounds like he, he's he's taken a couple of couple of bullets. He sounds a little weaker than the last time we I talked th- to him. Well, per, you know, uh, Steve Morris was nice enough to ask fans who the which members of the Untouchables that they all thought the four of us were, and mostly I've gotten Connery, so maybe it's appropriate. I like uh, and, where, and where we left off was uh, we had just seen the most one of the most brutal scenes in the film. Robert De Niro as Al Capone beating a man to death with a baseball bat. And then we do as we do many times in the film. We cut from the most violent moment into really a beautiful moment, which is uh, Elliot Ness's little daughter saying now I her prayers before bed. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And the music is sweet, and we're in this wonderful family moment. We got some Eskimo and butterfly kisses. I mean, this is as cute as could be. Do you have these moments yourself, Steve, as a dad? Stephen Jones and Stephen Morse? <laughs> uh, yes, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Why do you laugh? Like, yeah. Because I've done that for Shannon McClung at Comic-Con every once in a while. <laughs> I'll have yeah. him say your prayers, Shannon. It's a butterfly kisses. Yeah, get, it, it, it doesn't. Bed. It doesn't have the sweet vibe that Kevin Costner does. No, it's way, it's way more invasive. Get in bed. <laughs> Whenever I tuck Shannon in, it's always very sweet. Has been my experience, but maybe it's just. Well, maybe you, it's, you, know, you know how to cradle a child. Rogue is more likely the guy who beats somebody to death with a baseball right. bat. That's true. <laughs> true. That's, that's butterfly that's, kisses. Butterfly kisses. <laughs> Uh, yeah, clear, we can see it's the tuck-er in this situation, not the tuck-e. <laughs> um, and after the tucking occurs, we're outside, and Elliot Ness is ready to head back to work, and it's not he's going down the stairs, and no, he and his wife end up going up the stairs. Hello. hey Basically reinforcing it's nice to be married, you know, which is definitely one of the... M- you know, little minor themes of this film, I think, mm. to some degree. Yeah, yeah, Actually, point. yeah. I'm glad you brought that up because I, I, I was trying to figure out how to ask this question. What is this theme? I mean, like, because it happens, he's with the cop before the first raid and he says, oh, you're married? Yeah, it's nice to be married. And then we're going to hit that again several times. He says no married men should be on this thing. Mm. Like, why is Mamet reinforcing this married thing? I wonder if it's – this is at a time in Mamet's life where he is – in a happy relationship with Lindsey Krauss, you know, oh. a year after this, he's going to go on and make house of games, you know, where he basically makes his wife, the star of a film, right. you know, with uh, Steve Morris's former co-star Joe Montaigne. I, you know, so he might've just been, thank you. We, I hope you guys do that movie at some point. I love that um, movie. I would totally like to do that movie. Never seen it. That's why I bought it. Anyway, oh, I can't yeah. wait! I can't wait to hear what you're going to think about that, John. Yeah. Um, I hope it's not a Highlander experience for you. I don't oh, think it will. I don't be. think it will be. Better writers involved, I think. Yeah, go ahead. yeah. But so, so that I mean, I think because you know one of the one of the conceits I love of the what I heard interviews about uh, people and the didn't Tom Stoppard write Shakespeare in Love? Yes. Yeah, he did. Yeah. And I remember him saying that he was absolutely convinced that 
William Shakespeare was in love when he wrote Romeo and Juliet. Mm-hmm. And then that was some of the premise of what led to that. And so it makes me wonder now, I, don't, I doubt you and I are going to get Lindsay or David on the phone to find out where, what kind of place he was in in 1987. But that was sort of my theory was that I don't think you write that stuff unironically unless that's the place that you're in at that mm. point. You know? Well, and from a, from a character point of view, I think it really, I think it calls back to two things. I think it calls back to um, Elliot Ness meeting with the mother of the little girl mm. who, who died at the end or died mm. at the beginning. Mm. And he's like, I don't want to be responsible for another one of these. Mm-hmm. But I think it also calls back to his conversation with uh, Connery in the church of, you know, you know, what are you prepared to do? And he's just like, I don't want anyone else to have to go home to their family if we have to go as far as this gentleman is insinuating. Right. Uh, Go ahead, John. No, I also think it's it's um, uh, grasping nostalgia, you know, from the 40s and 50s. We have this idea of middle America, of mom and pop, of the Norman Rockwell painting. So the way they speak about marriage is if it's this incredibly untouchable, beautiful uh, institution and it's something sweet to have in your life and you're lucky to be married. And all of them are at the beginning of their marriages, right? All at the, just at the beginning of that stuff. So it's like, it's this, it's still new, it's still fresh. So it recalls a time because the way it's shot, the way it's filmed is very nostalgic. Even though there are some hard moments in the movie, it's very much about transporting you back to a time where we were presented certain uh, points of views or certain situations in the 40s and 50s from those movies of that time where marriage was seen as this really important thing and beautiful thing and something positive to be spoken about. Even though Best Years of Our Lives is right around this time as well, for the most part, it's that idea that there's a Norman Rockwell painting and that's who he is. That's who he's supposed to symbolize in this movie as a juxtaposition to um, to um, Capone, who is not married uh, or has a kid rather and probably is married. But we don't see his wife or his marriage at all. I, I'm so glad this came up because it's, the, everything you guys have said has been great. And it's helped me connect a thing that I hadn't connected before, uh, which is that. So we have this marriage theme. Mm-hmm. And we all, and, and we also have this cut from the violence to the family, like that. That mm. contrast is happening over and over again. Violence in Capone to the home and family life, and in, in the sense that it is the violence that threatens the family. And then we also have the what is uh, Sean Connery say the number one job of the cop is to make it home alive at the end of the day, right. and that's making it home to the family. You know, mm-hmm. and that he, and that um, Ness is saying, I don't want any other married people because I don't want the Capone violence to hurt the family. And it's and then you also have Malone, who, for whatever reason, I don't think he's ever been married. I think because mm-hmm. of his dedication to the job and because he's led a very lonely, lonely life. So yeah, I think all the these things are connected. Mm-hmm. Well, Steve, just to speak to what you said, directorially storyboard, uh, you know, composition and editing wise, you know, we cut off of that crazy, very De Palma shot where the camera drifts up away, you know, as we're looking down at the pooling, as the blood starts to pool and we cut to the flattest shot. It's very, very composed of the two Mm. of the, the girl and the mom kneeling and he's in the frame. And it makes me realize, you know what the composition of that shot reminds me of? It's so flat. It reminds me as if you've peeled open a dollhouse 
Mm. And you're just looking inside like the top level of a dollhouse and a bunch of like almost dolls standing there, you know, like there's almost no depth in that shot, you know? And I think there's, there's something interesting about the fact that you pull from such a strange godlike, very, you know, deep shot to then this sort of flat kind of, you know, image that almost looks like just like a painting on a wall, you know? Um, so, so, so right before we got on the mic, I said to everyone, you know, I'm going to do my best to move a little faster. And not only are we not doing that, um, but now because of what you just said, Steve, I have to explain a complicated idea. But uh, this is a full film school thing. But, but I, it's ne- I don't think it's ever come up in this way on the show. And so uh, there, one of the best professors I ever had is a guy named Bruce Block at USC. And if you ask people who went to USC film school – who was your best class, there is a good chance they'll say Bruce Block. Bruce Block uh, taught sort of visual expression in film. He has a book called The Visual Story. I teach from this book uh, in my film school classes. It is the most complicated and difficult class I teach. Um, And here is a concept of his. So he divides visuals into seven elements, which are space, line, color, shape, uh, rhythm, tone, uh, maybe I missed one. I don't know if I got all of them. But, uh, uh, and movement, that's what it is. And, um, and what he says, he spends a lot of time on space. And in space, he talks about four different kinds of spaces, but the most important are deep space and flat space. And so deep space we just talked about is what Steve was explaining. As that camera's pulling up, we have this very deep space shot. And then we go to flat space. And, and what Bruce Block says, he talks about this idea of contrast and affinity. And contrast means different. Affinity means the same. And what he says, this whole theory is based on the idea that moving between different things increases visual intensity. So that if I go from a flat space shot to a flat space shot or a scene entirely shot in flat space to a scene entirely shot in flat space, that has a lower intensity from going from deep space to flat space. So what, and so I tried to explain that literally that is about an hour and a half of a class to just get to what I just said. So I tried to do it very quickly. But what Steve describes is a perfect example of creating visual intensity through how you use shape, uh, space within a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, so now we're going to move faster. <laughs> so we're, I, wi- we're, I wish us luck. We can get them on income tax evasion if we can just show that any of the money from the organization's business is going to him. See, legally, he receives no income. And I, I want to point out a thing, Shannon, I know you're familiar with this idea in screenwriting, is there's times where you have to touch in on a plot point to make sure it doesn't fall out of the consciousness of the audience. Like, I have to just touch it again, and that's what this moment is. Especially if you don't know the story. Like, when I, when I saw it, I, this, this was a very innocuous line because I didn't know the story behind, behind the, the eventual arrest of Al Capone. So, ha- so having Oscar bring up, um, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't filed a, uh, an income tax return in four years, and Ness's response of, you know, one of the worst gangsters in history and you want to go after her for not paying his taxes. <laughs> I mean, it's such a great comedic moment that it didn't, it's not until they're on the train later to where he hits it again that it's like, oh, this is important. In walks an alderman, a government official. And I love his costuming. I love the way he speaks. And he has a very thick envelope to leave on Ness's desk. <laughs> yeah. 
and he's a terrible he, he's a terrible bag man. <laughs> he's he almost, really bad. He almost looks a little bit like the Nazi torturer from Raiders in terms of like you know there couldn't be more visual cues on him oh. to, as from a character design point of view of like this is a bad guy. You know, all he, all like, he needed to do was take out a complicated coat, uh, coat hanger, and you're good to go. There is large, a large and popular business which you are causing dismay. Why don't you just cross the street and let things take their course? In Roman times, when a fellow was convicted of trying to bribe a public official, they would cut off his nose and sew him in a bag with a wild animal and throw that bag in the river. You tell your master that we must agree to disagree and throws that envelope at him. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are untouchable. Is that what this is? Um, so, so in case you guys don't know who that is, that's Del Close, who's one of the greatest improv oh, teachers. I had ever. no idea that's who yeah. that was. Yeah, that's Del Close. And he's, he's such a distinct character in the movie. I looked him up years ago, and I couldn't believe that it was this guy who's a legend in the improv world and talked to me. And it's because he's, he's a Chicago guy. So they brought him in to play this part real quick. And, of course, I'm probably friends with Mamet and what have you. So they brought him in to play this part. And he's so distinct. Even though he's a weird bag man, he is an alderman. So he's not going to be like, you know, hey, take the money. It's more <laughs> like, you know, he looks like one of those smarmy politicians that would have been around in Chicago at yeah. that time. So it plays really well. And I love the way he goes, you guys are untouchables. Is that it? Is that the thing? It's crazy and the even, way he plays And he even it. says everyone can be gotten to. Yeah, it, it, and it, there is a sense of dread when he says that before they throw him out, and he's not wrong, as we see no. yeah, as the film cool. progresses. Yeah. Uh, by the way, in 1931, a member of Capone's gang uh, promised ne Elliot Ness two $1,000 bills would be on his desk every Monday morning, and Ness said no. The, just to speak really quickly to this, uh, of the marriage thing and Ness in the scene, it, it just... It reaffirms again, like, especially when you think that up until this point, Costner had played like the crazy guy in Silverado and stuff like mm. so hard to just play. I mean, it really makes sense. And it, because Zack Snyder's around the same age as us that, I mean, Costner's perfect as Jonathan Kent, right? Mm. He just he represents all in this film. And as Jonathan Kent, he's ostensibly representing like like all that is good about the American male of the middle of the of the United States, you know, of this era, you know, of the American male. Like he represents an ideal of just like, of who would inspire, Clark, you know, like Elliot Ness's son would become Clark Kent and then be Superman, right. you know? Right. It's so funny. Cause I know I mentioned this in part one and we're going to get to it in part two is I a hundred percent think that's what the movie is trying to do. And the more I think about it, the more I think it's actually not true in the way that we think it is. But, but we're going to get to that right in the next mm -hmm. scene because, uh, uh, Elliot Ness is coming home. It's nighttime. Hey, nice house. I said, nice house. You live there? <laughs> Little girl's having a birthday, huh? Yes. Nice to have a family. And there is our, again, the costumes just pointing him right out. Our man in the white suit, Frank Nitty, and the dread of this moment. Mm. Right. De de death wears a death rides a pale horse, you know. Mm. Totally. Oh, great point. Man should take care. See that nothing happens to. You. That guy's so good. His casting does all the work. If he never oh, yeah. opened his mouth, I mean, and he's a tremendous actor, but mm. you're just immediately 
there's something so freaking cold-blooded and reptilian about this Repti- guy's performance. Reptilian you know? is the perfect way to describe him, Steve Jones. Yeah. I mean, he is such... Um, obviously, you had the costuming, but then you just have... He has such a distinct look. Yeah, um, yeah. He just has that perfectly slicked back hair, that, that nose. It's just a little... It's almost a little pointy. It's like a needle, almost. It's right. like this, this guy... He would have been a great... I, 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 I wonder if Billy Drago was ever to play was ever able to play a warm character. I'm kind of guessing no. <laughs> no, I, I think he made a living playing villains for the rest of his life until he passed. <laughs> yeah, it was great. Um, the run the run into the house is just really scary. Yeah, because he could take it's it's only a few seconds, but the few seconds of not being able to find his kid is super scary. Right. Uh, but he does find them, and they run outside, and a car comes up. Where's Malone? He's on the stakeout. He'll be right here. Who's this guy? He's uh, one of the men on his list. He's all right. He puts the his family into the car, again says goodbye with the Eskimo and butterfly kisses, and they drive away. There's just a great close-up of Costner in this moment of... It's, it's sort of this mix of, my family is now safe, my family is not safe. And this is also where Ness understands what's at stake with what he's doing for the first time. Do you know what I'm saying? The fact that he never had security around his house, like that's that kind of innocence, that kind of stupid innocence that he had about this thing, thinking that they would play by the rules because he plays by the rules, family's off limits. The second Nitty shows up at his house, this is a whole nother ball game for him. And, uh, and the, you know, it's convenient that he gets rid of his family uh, until much later because it allows him to focus on what needs to be done in the latter half of the movie. Speaking really quickly, just all of those exterior shots, both when Nitty drives off and when they're packing his family in, mm. I just love what De Palma does throughout this film. There's so much depth. He's spraying down the streets to get them all wet, and he's putting up these giant lights that are off screen oh, no. to reflect down. So we're seeing street lights, but the reason, but we see Nitty's car all the way to the end of the street. We see his family driving off all the way to the end of the street because he's lighting those streets to give it so much depth and to pay attention. Like, hey guys. We got period cars. They go all the way down to the street. Okay, you're in 19, you're in 1930. You know, like, and we're in the empty street, and then way in the distance, we see this car pulling up. And at first, you know, we don't know who that car is. And of course, it ends up being Malone and Stone. I want to hurt the man, Malone. You hear me? I want to start taking the battle to him. I want to hurt Capone. But this is where I want to push back on the straight arrow thing a little bit, which okay. is that he shows up, he goes on that first raid. The first raid doesn't go well, and he immediately turns to Malone, and the scene with Malone is, how far are you prepared to go? You know, mm-hmm. And then what? And, the, and, and he makes an agreement where he knows that they're going to go do things that are a little bit outside of law, and then he does refuse the bribe, but now he's saying, I want to hurt the man. You hear me? And now I think if Capone was in front of me right then, he'd shoot him dead. I think. Well, um, I mean, yes, Steve, you're right because later on in the movie, when uh, what happens to Malone happens to Malone, he walk. No, no, I'm sorry. What happens to Oscar? Oscar, Oscar yeah, he yeah. walks into the hotel and confronts Capone right there on the staircase. So yeah, you're well, absolutely and this right. is why I say, like, I don't think he's actually such a straight arrow. I think that's how he's being presented. But I actually, other than refusing the bribe, he most of the time he's outside of the rules. You know, I see. I, I disagree because I think I think he is the straight arrow. I think he's talking about these things in a hypothetical sense. Um, it's it's one thing to discuss them; it's another thing to be actually presented to you right in front of your face, right in front of your house. Yeah. Also, I think Chicago. 
Yeah. Ahead, also, also, he could be speaking speaking about it figuratively. He when him him saying I want to hurt the man, it does not mean he necessarily wants to actually physically hurt the man. What he wants to do is cripple the man's business, put him in jail, you know, hurt him in that way, hurt him in the way that he can't be a boss anymore, and get him. And and Connery says right afterwards, "Well, then a merry Christmas because we've got some great news. There's going to be a huge international shipment coming through. We got the time, the place, and the whole shebang." So clearly. That's how Connery took it. Not here. Let me drive you to his house. I know exactly where he lives, and I'll uh, turn the uh, blinkers on. You can kick his ass. Like it's just different uh, well, in that way. Well, I think everybody's right in a sense that I think it just represents Elliot's character arc. I think he mm. comes in straight, yeah. and the experience of being in Chicago bends him. Well, and I also think because it's the, nothing. I'm not. This is not a criticism. It's just right. kind of an observation, and that. What's so interesting to me is how little you actually have to do to plant that straight arrow. You have those mm-hmm. opening scenes of him making the speech about not taking a drink and let's go do some good. And like it's our perceptions of him are very locked in. Yeah. So you don't have to do because Mamet does such a good job setting him up. It's amazing and so theatrical. You don't even think about it until like all of us where we've watched this film now 50 times that then we end that sequence with like a kind of a heroic running version of the right stuff shot where the four guys are running down the street with guns. They're mm. beautifully lit from behind with the, the streets all reflecting blue. When he spins and all four of them start walking down the street, that music swells. That's a, uh, I don't mean to cuss around something beautiful, but that's a fucking movie moment. That is a movie. Mo- that's why you, you take the auditions, you fight your ass off to get to be a lead or get to be one of the main leads of a film like this, just so you can have a moment like that where the camera is panning down as you're walking down the street and the music is swelling because it's a heroic, heroic moment. Now, why are they jogging down the street? They should just go get in the car to go (laughs) fight the guy. (laughs) And they just pulled up in a car. Like it doesn't make any sense. (laughs) And they don't run and even go get into the car. But it's, but, it's such but it's, a good point because it's so good. But it's such yeah. a great hero shot. It is like a yeah. that is like that is that is the Avengers running toward the camera. You know, yeah. Like, I, I want them hitting that third block, going, "Whose fucking idea was it to run? Whose idea you, was you know?" Connor is like, yeah, Connery's contract is like, look, I'll run ten more feet, and then that's it. I'm done. And what does he say later in the film? That's enough. But it's running shit. Yeah, I'm 57 years old. I'm not going to run anymore. Uh, uh, the other thing I love is that it's uh, this is such a case where the four actors just are parallel the four characters so perfectly because mm-hmm. you have the old experienced guy who's been through some some harder times you have the young all-american guy you have the uh darker more uh dangerous actor and you have the character actor mm-hmm. you know like their 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 careers bring them in a weird way to this place perfectly mm-hmm. and it's terrific that we get just this is the first moment too when uh oscar gets to act kind of cool right like he shows up He's got a gun. He's there to protect Ness's kid. And you'd never know he was the nerdy guy. He's there fully, you know, as like a combat guy to help protect it. And it's a great clue of where it's go- where we're going with him, you know. Well, and where we're going, it's funny. You said this. I think you said this earlier. You said when they're on the train. Because mm-hmm. the shot, the next shot is a classic on a train uh, shot. Except they're not on a train. It's a plane. That's what's mm-hmm. so bizarre about this moment. Because I literally, in my notes, I had written, oh, they're on a train. And then, like, 
three lines down, it says, no, it's not. A tr- it's a plane. Oh, my They're gosh. Flying. <laughs> it's so odd. And what we touch on again is we touch again, we touch on tax evasion um, and the camera pulls out in this really kind of cool shot where it kind of moves forward to the pilot. It's a very, very odd, but interesting shot. I mean, if they'd done that shot today, they probably would have done it just like this, but then they would have composited it with CG. So you could have pulled all the way right. back out so we could have seen them in the sky, you know, like, and instead they did this probably just, you know, on a runway with the plane never leaving the ground, but it's still, it's a great idea for a shot. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we end up in the mo. it's such a bizarre moment. I think the first time you see the film, because we're out in the woods, we're like in nature mm. and we our dudes are on horses. <laughs> like it's so odd. Um, <laughs> how, how lucky that these four guys from Chicago all know how to ride a horse. Yeah. Same shot. Yeah. <laughs> well, Yes. Well, I think yeah. it's forg- it's forgivable for Connery because, say, if he's fifty-seven in nineteen thirty, then he probably would have, you know, he actually would have been young when there was no cars when you had to learn to ride a horse. You know? yeah. yeah, I guess I'm thinking more about the the inner city kid with Stone and the bookworm with Oscar <laughs> that, they're, yeah. that they're that outdoorsy that they can hop on that horse and take off. And we were with the the Mounties, the Canadian Mounted Police, yeah. which are, by the way, this is all shot in Montana, and those are all locals. Um, and we hear about the plan. There's going to be a bunch of trucks with Canadian whiskey coming over the border. There are going to be some guys meeting them. And basically the plan is, you guys don't come out until I flash my badge. That's yeah. the plan. Just beautiful composition of that shot of the five of them all stacked and layered with Kevin Costner pointing off screen. It's just, it's amazingly composed. It's great. Yeah. Uh, and then we end up in the cabin. I love this scene so much. The sort of waiting for the, for the action to start. And Connery's sort of just coach moments. This is the job. Don't wait for it to happen. Don't even want it to happen. Just watch what does happen. Stomp your feet if you're if you're cold. You know. <laughs> Have um, you checked it? <laughs> leave it alone. Leave it alone. <laughs> they're, they're all great. I mean, and they're all, and, the, and this is this is the Zen master. This is Yoda. This is like, yeah. This is the deep truths he's teaching these guys. I love I love the moment where he says, "Are you my tutor?" Yes, sir. I, I am. Yeah, because guess what, Ness? You came and got me, son. You came and got me, and we sat in the church, so I am your tutor. Stop feeling yourself. Calm down. I think that's that's the right response there. Also, I want to say one thing real quick, Steve. This is the second Hoosiers reference of the film. The Mountie captain is the assistant coach on Hoosiers other than Dennis Hopper, the big burly dude. The guy's the, like the, the sheriff or something? No, no, no. The the guy he's on the he's on the he's like the guy that who his son like talks back to him and he brings him back, says, you know, boys get mixed up from time to time. Let me know if he gives right. you any more trouble. Later on in the film, we see him. He is an assistant coach uh-huh. on the team with Hackman, obviously for Hackman, whenever Dennis Hopper is out of the way, uh, you know, getting drunk or whatever. So he's the big burlier guy with the silver gotcha. hair. So yeah. So. Quick question. Do you think I mean, is this a a set that has some great like uh rear projection for the exteriors that we're seeing or did they just tear the wall off of this cabin they mm. so they built the cabin for this Makes uh, sense. so they could remove the walls when they they did it uh, okay. here's the weird thing uh, is that the cabin was only supposed to be for the scene after where the guy gets killed it wasn't mm. supposed the waiting scene was supposed to be like hiding behind some rocks 
And the horses were only supposed to be for that first scene with the Mounties on the ridge. They weren't supposed to be, there was never supposed to be like a ride up on horses. And as soon as they got there, they went, well, this cabin is awesome. And if we got horses, let's use them. And so that, which turned like a one week shoot into a three week shoot, basically. (laughs) Everything got bigger. Um, That's great. Kind of like this podcast. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Um, uh, and then, and then, uh, <laughs> we're watching the bridge through binoculars and, you know, event, he, the guy, the bad guys show up, get out of the car. We see a bunch of armed guys. They come out and they're getting ready to go. And here come the Canadians. They yeah, did not awesome. wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's so great. The Canadians. They're so fun. <laughs> Some sad light teasing from the Midwest toward our Canadian brethren. <laughs> um, and I love the line. I love the line. What the hell? You're going to die of something. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and it's, it's very obvious, but if I hadn't mentioned it before, De pa- this is all John Ford. You know, like mm. mostly De Palma. You could see all the Hitchcock references here. Sure. The shots through the doors, the shots of the landscapes, the wide shots of the horses, like the moving yeah. camera. Like, it's all John Ford stuff. Yeah. Um, I love this action sequence. I think it's great. It's It's fantastic. I mean, there's so... You know, the, the team breaks up a little bit. The fact that there is just such a stark difference between as the Canadians come up on the bridge and there is this very proper British trot that they have and they cut over to our heroes and it's full on cowboy. I mean, fucking, it's fucking it's Commonwealth so much, versus cowboys. It's yeah. so much fun. It's it's great. Well, and we have great character mode. I and mean, this is the, mm. you know, I know because I've read so many of your action sequences, Shannon, is like, this is what makes good action sequences is having character moments with it's not just people are fighting. It's what's happening. So we have we have Stone who runs up with the Tommy gun, opens fire, then he gets hit. This is what finally pushes the accountant into that next level. It's when he sees Stone get shot, you know, he goes, Stone, yeah. Stone. And then that's what motivates him. You know, like now, like they're becoming brothers, you know. Yeah. Well, and he kind of goes Great berserker. Point. I mean, mm-hmm. He just rolls in, you know. <laughs> you uh, well, and Steve, Steve, wasn't there that? Didn't the actor? Um, he kind of really fought that whole drinking some of the alcohol at the oh. end of his yeah. a, as the button on a scene, and apparently De Palma just felt very strongly, and so luckily, uh, you know, the, this actor had just. He'd sort of made the decision early of like, okay, look, I'm just placing my trust in De Palma, so I'm going to go along with him on this one. And then, of course, it turns out to be, and I remember even in the theater at the time, it just gets a huge laugh. It's one of those mm-hmm. moments where you just, you need that release at the end of tension. You know, That's, like, yeah, it gives it gives you a chance to catch your breath because there's there's uh, just enough of a, of a beat for him yeah. to kind of, he takes his hat off, he wipes his head, looks around, is like, oh boy, this... Uh, Looks around again, takes a step. I mean, it's so yeah. funny, and you have a great pseudo Indiana Jones moment with uh, with Costner as he 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 goes prone and he's unloading his gun on this uh, on this uh, car and it rolls right over the top of him. Tint, I love the the storytelling of just when we're on under the car with Kevin and then we re- we just see the bad guy's feet come down into frame <laughs> and start running shot. off. It's just such a great great way to set that shot up. It's so exciting. I mean, it's it's the type of thing. It's 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 a practical sequence, which practi- like as awesome as as CGI can be. I I love a huge 
computer-generated battle. But what really gets, for me at least, what really gets an audience going is seeing things that actually happened. Well, and I just, now I realize why, why this seems so great, why this, because we all came to see this movie because we thought we were coming to see Cops and Robbers, and we actually got Cowboys versus Robbers for one scene, you know, and, totally. we, and when do we ever see that, you know? Yes. Totally, no. totally agree. And what's what's interesting about this movie is this is the peak of the team and we're not going to get any more of them. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. this is it. Um, and it's, and they're just all so great. We have, we have Malone chased after his guys. We have Costner chase his guy into the cabin and we get that again, great sneaky movement uh, music as we go in. See what you say that makes me realize that, you know, if you, those Blake Snyder books are really interesting about film structure, you know, mm. and it makes me realize the timing of this is perfect, right? Like, this is the ultimate promise of the premise to use that, you know, where we, we came to watch these four guys be in act in, mm-hmm. in action. And it makes you realize that the death of the accountant is really, that's the midpoint. That's when the whole film, you know, shifts. Yeah. And then Malone's, you know, death comes at the, uh, you know, at the, at the mid, at the worst point in act two, you know, but it's like, but we signed up, we came to watch this movie. We signed up for this scene. Really? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Drop the gun. Put your hands in the air. You're under arrest. I said drop it. The guy doesn't drop it and Ness shoots him. This moment is great because, once again, these are the moments of the straight arrow, right? Because he's like, in my opinion, and you know, um, and I think defending your family is a straight arrow thing. Oh, no, I I agree. I totally agree. And in this moment here, again, like he doesn't want to kill. I mean, I, uh, you asked me this. I don't remember, Steve, we did it off camera or in the first part. But you asked me, like, has he ever shot his gun uh, or shot his rifle? And here's a here's a moment with a shotgun where he shoots this guy and he's like he feels terrible about it. And once again, this is great writing because one he becomes our hero yet again, multiple times throughout the movie. Elliot Ness becomes our ultimate American hero. In that moment, he's saying, ah, didn't you hear me? Why did you make me? Like, he didn't want to kill him. There's no bloodthirst here. There's no desire to kill these people. He want, he's following the law. He wants to arrest them, let them put them in jail, and they serve their time to society. He does not want to kill necessarily. And in that moment, it's a really actually honest moment when he's expressed. And Costner plays it well. Costner plays it really well. Like he just is struggling with what he's just done. And he's probably a very Christian man. So taking a life probably means something to him as well. I, I couldn't agree more. And what I like so much about the moment is it's so unexpected his reaction it's not him bursting into tears it's not he's angry at the guy for getting himself killed like like that is such a unique interesting piece of writing and i totally agree costner plays it great the way it shot is so great because when kevin has that initial when elliot has that initial reaction of like and he he talks to the guy de palma just cuts to the dead body Mm. as if like, is the dead body going to say anything or not say anything? And then there's there's a strange, weird humor to that fact that we're, we've cut to a dead guy and then we cut back to Costner. <laughs> but then as we then as we come back in, we push in and then it's a little bit of like, a, oh, wait, is this going to be a Jason Friday the 13th thing? Is the guy going to just pop up as the camera kind of pushes in and tilts over him? And then we realize that he doesn't. And then Costner just does that great line where he, and then he throws the gun down and just sits down. He's so disappointed. And when he sits down... The camera pans down and the dead body is just looming in the foreground. Yeah. You know, oh, like great shot. right oh, in the front point, of the flame. Man. 
while yeah. Kevin's just like, oh man, you know. That's fantastic. And now in comes Sean Connery with his prisoner. <laughs> Georgie. Georgie. That's enough of this running I, shit. I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you I, I'm gonna tell you whatever you want. <laughs> You're gonna talk, bookkeeper. You you got a lot of money changing hands in this book. What is this, Ward? Uh-huh. A police precincts? But you got a heading here, circuit court? And now they're like, we want this information. What does all this mean? Is one of these codes Capone? And this guy's not going to talk. And this is really an interesting moment because Con- uh, Connery's been the one telling everybody, be cool, be patient, relax. You know, like, it'll come to you. Don't be-. And he's the one that's, like, frustrated that this guy won't talk. He's pissed off so much so that Ness has to escort him out of the cabin. And that is a shocking moment of a switch of power where Connery had been kind of like he said to him, are you my mentor or tutor or whatever? The reverse happens now where it's the student trying to usher the teacher out of the room before the teacher makes the boneheaded mistake, you know? Well, and then then the teacher, uh, does he uh, stop? (laughs) No, the teacher goes next level, man. (laughs) Grabs that Robert De Niro stand in and he messes around with him for sure. At this moment, it's amazing. Connery grabs the dead guy, talks to him, picks him up, puts him against the wall, sticks his gun in his mouth, threatens him, says he's going to count to three. And what I think is so amazing at this moment is there's like this moment right before it happens that you go, oh, he's going to shoot the dead guy. (laughs) (laughs) Which he does. And Blood and brains spray everywhere. It's really gross. And uh, that guy answers the questions. And so much, it's so important that they set him up before. The scene does not work as well without the without the, the Mountie there, right? Right. Like, like, we need him there to just, you know, otherwise, otherwise it's like we're all in on the trick too much, you know, whereas, but if the Mountie's there, he's there to stand in for everybody else, you know? Well, and it puts a perfect button on the scene because he, the Mountie says, Mr. Ness, you're not to prove of your methods. And Ness's reply. Yeah. Well, you're not from Chicago. (laughs) Which, what a, what a, what a ballsy statement for the Mountie to make after he was the one who jumped the gun (laughs) initially. Right. Well, well, and that and that that line you just said, Steve, is so important because you know Co- Elliot Ness is now saying that he's from Chicago, exactly. right? Know? Right. Like he has embraced the transition from the "let's do some good guy" through the "what are you prepared to do?" They bring a knife, you bring a gun. To yeah, well, you're not from Chicago, right? Like, like it's that is just it's a perfect perfect ending to the scene. Mm-hmm. By the way, uh, six months after uh, the Ness and the Untouchables, the real Ness showed up, they'd cost two, Capone $2 million in income. By the end of their work, they'd cost him $9 million. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Uh, we're back to, speaking of Capone, we're back to Capone. Of course, he's in the red chair. We're always going to be surrounded by red. And he uh, gets the news that they got the whole shipment. And, you know, of course, I'm just going to cut to what De Niro says at this moment. <laughs> I want you to get this fuck where he breathes. I want you to find this Nancy boy, Elliot Ness. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ashes. It's a perfect marriage of mammoth language with De Niro performance. I want his house <laughs> burnt to the ground. I want to piss on his ashes. 
I, I love it. It's a great, great moment. Who hasn't wanted to say that one time in their life, for God's sake? I love it. I, every morning when I get up, I say it. <laughs> I love that his, that his, the stooge is just crying. They got the whole shipment. They got the whole shipment. Yeah. <laughs> like, if I panic enough, maybe he won't, he won't yeah. take this out on me. Right. Because I think he was there for the baseball bat. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then what do we cut to? We cut to a baby in a cradle. So we cut again from mm. the intensity and talking about violence to the beatific, you know, family stuff. Uh, what we find out is he just had a kid. That's what going upstairs was about. You're right. <laughs> baby, that was nine months ago. <laughs> it's, not, it's nice to be married. And it's a it's a lovely scene. And she's worried but not critical she's supportive he's feels terrible for not being there but also good about what he's accomplishing mm-hmm. um it's a, it's a nice little scene well i like what they name him like like you know his name is his name is john which i which now watching i'm like oh john jonathan kent um oh, but wow. also but also when she follows with john law and like that's a very that's a very <laughs> funny uh, uh reference of the time i don't you yeah. don't hear that that often anymore true i think you wanted to call I him jay, was... it's jay edgar and he's like we're not calling him jay edgar <laughs> that guy I wears dresses was, i thought yeah, he was right. named after roca no no <laughs> that's a white um, child come on yeah <laughs> um, and then <laughs> Things are going well. We've got we're putting out a warrant, uh, a subpoena for uh, Capone for tax evasion, and I think I did mention in the first part that Elliot Ness and the Untouchables had nothing to do with the tax evasion case. They were purely on the booze. That was another operation headed by a, an accountant named Frank Wilson. They literally had nothing to do with it, but in this case, they do. And now we're into this amazing long tracking shot, and it, it, it's definitely one to just study. Um, and in particular, what will happen is is the camera pulls – It's all the camera moves are motivated, which means that it's people moving that make the camera move. And what will happen is someone else will walk in a frame, and then the camera will follow that person. And then someone else will cross in a frame, and the camera will move in with that person. It's just so interesting. And with all these, all these continuous shots, they're always going to something bad. And I, I love the moment we have Stone and Oscar, and Stone says, Can I enjoy the tactical aspects of law enforcement? Is that it, Oscar? Oh, yeah. It's much more diverting than accounting. <laughs> <laughs> Which it's so, I mean, he, Charles Ronson does such a great job here because you've seen, like, you've seen him be exposed to this new world, and there haven't been any extreme consequences from it because Stone got shot. But Stone made a full recovery so much that, I mean, this couldn't have been that long after the raid. Hmm. Um, but he, he's he's really feeling himself. He's sort of the cock of the walk. I mean, he's he's hanging on to George, who is a bigger guy. And he, he's he's feeling just as confident as one can be, which makes what is about to happen all the more heartbreaking. Hmm. And, and well, I mean, one thing I, you know, De Palma talked about too, and he had his instinct was so right. Like I think his direction constantly to Charles Martin Smith, right, as the actor that plays. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he's like, look, I, I want them, to, I want the audience to be laughing with you the entire time, right up until the moment of your death. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and I think that was such the right instinct because we just love this guy more and more like a teddy bear, and then he turns out he's a teddy bear that's got claws. You know, but then they just pull the rug out from under us, and the reveal of. Nitty is so shitty and creepy in that shot. And to do it all again in one shot where they hide him well, they hide him well. And then it's really only in the moment where he's close, you know, 
when Nitty himself closes the doors, we're like, holy fuck, is that that guy? You know, like, and then, but then we're panning away. It's so terrible because it, it, it feels like it happens too early in the movie in, in a mm. weird way. You know what I mean? Yes. It's like, oh, oh no. Mm. Um, and the thing too about he, he had his berserker moment on the bridge and he came out totally unscathed. He even got the drink of whiskey. You know what I mean? Like, so, so it reinforced for him like, oh, this can work. I'm like a hero. I am a badass. Mm. And so this moment of, you know, it's much more diverting than accounting, which is such an amazing moment right before he's going to get killed. And then, and then again, De Palma doesn't stay in the elevator. He goes back out again into a long tracking shot where um, we have uh, Malone and Ness talking about the baby. And, and that this is classically Hitchcock. They're having an entirely innocuous conversation. And what creates the tension is we know what's happening and they don't. And we're like, yeah. oh, what are you doing? You got to get to the elevator. You got to hurry up. Did you notice that the woman getting off the elevator is smiling? She's oh, yeah. the yes. one that set the hold up. She yep. is the assistant to the mayor, wherever that uh, larger dude is, uh, the district attorney maybe, he, she is his assistant. She is on the take with Capone and a part of this. So when she gets off the elevator and smiles at Charles Martin Smith and he says, oh, yeah, it's much more diverting. It's essentially like, oh, yeah, I can get the girls. Uh, she's the one that's kind of betrayed him yeah. and leads to Nitty getting in there and everything like that. So she's the one that's given the information for Nitty to be there. I'm glad you brought up that moment, too. That's a great observation. And I also feel like it's just the classic thing in storytelling, both with Charles Martin Smith and with Costner in at the end of the shot, which is it's the classic pride cometh before the fall. Yeah, right. right like, great point. Yep. Like Charles Martin Smith is just he's enjoying this all a little too much, mm-hmm. you know. And then when we end on the shot with Costner, when he comes around and the guy they say something about the elevator and Costner and, and Connery are smoking their cigars. They're all just enjoying, they're reveling a little too much. Mm. And Costner has a moment of being cautious, but then he dismisses it like, nah, it's fine. And then he goes back and then we cut back to the death. So it's like, yeah. look, you guys relaxed for one second and you can't do that in this kind of fight, you know? Mm. And the moment of the death is just brutal and beautifully done. Yeah. There's a huge music build and then the music cuts out which is really key to create this. That makes it more shocking. The look on uh, Oscar's face, that sort of gasp, it happens super, super fast. Because I'm telling, telling you, you they are going to <gasps> There's yeah. a double, cu- double cut too, right? Like we, mm-hmm. we cut in on the shot and then they cut in on another close-up really quickly, you know. Yeah, it's and the uh, the prop guys knowing it was the Palma, they just brought huge amounts of blood and brain and all this stuff. And the Palma's like, no, no, that's too much. Let's pull that back a little bit. Um, I really think so. You know, Brian De Palma is not my favorite director, but I think what he does here, and of course, definitely when we get to the train station, he's as good as anybody. And I really think you know filmmakers out there study the way this whole sequence is set up. It's so beautifully done. And then the dawning realization with Sean Connery and Kevin Costner of, Oh, they're in the elevator. Was that a gunshot? And Mm. then, and then we even see Mike, who's the, you know, the chief of police. We see how he was in on it, you know, because he Mm. looks out the window and sees what's going on. And it's like, Oh no. Yeah. And the, the editing of that great shot where he sees Nitty walk by and then we follow Nitty down in the alley in one of those classic moments where Nitty just departs foreground of shot as Costner and Connery come around the corner like, oh, Jesus, they just fucking just missed, missed them. 
But but by the way, the actual accountant Frank Wilson was not killed. Uh, he he lived and he 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 went on to work on the Lindbergh kidnapping. Oh wow! Um, so he was really an important guy for the FBI for the Treasury Department. That we get to the elevator and they've hung up uh, Oscar's body. It's mm. just brutal. It's a brutal, Oof. brutal moment. And. And then there the chief of police shows up and says, it's always a crime when a young guy goes down on the line. I'd hate to see it happen to someone I know. Sometimes it's better not to get involved. Jimmy, take a day off. Get out of the city for a while. You know what I mean? But also the chief of police, if you remember, just a few seconds ago was looking through the window and saw... One of his own guys there dead from a headshot wound in a pool of blood that Nitty had killed in order to get the uniform and get up there and do whatever. So like the chief of police is carrying a little bit of of guilt about this whole situation. And when it's revealed later on in the film that he's the one that's been giving the information to Connery about Capone, these moments when you rewatch the movie carry extra weight. Because you can tell, and this is an accomplished actor, Richard Bradford, you can tell that with the silent moments, he is playing multiple levels uh, within his performance just by his looks, just by his body position, and just by the interactions he has with Connery throughout the film. Yeah, I love that. And, and, and I think we also failed to mention what is actually written in blood in oh, the elevator. Right. Touchable. Yeah. Touchable. Oh. I mean, oh, yeah. gosh. It's great. Right. Look, when I bought tickets to this film, I was explicitly told that these people would be untouchable. <laughs> you have broken the contract. Um, and then this is where Coster, we, as you alluded to before, yeah. we're at the hotel. Coster comes, storms in, looking oh. for Capone. De Niro and his entourage coming down the steps. And, you know, Elliot Ness is ready to, th- he wants to throw yeah. down right there. Come out here, Capone. You want to fight? You want to fight you and me right here? I love can it. I just, voice can I here. say, Steve, really quickly, too, I think that this seems so great, but if Coster's performance in the elevator sets it up, if he doesn't deliver in that whole scene, then this scene's just an angry guy walking down the street into the hotel. You know what yeah. I mean? Like, and also, I think- all the timing works, Steve, as well, right? Because he's like, oh, like the, the, the pain of finally seeing someone he's begun to care about one of the brothers go down in his in the line of duty and the chief of police stopping connery that extra bit of the chief of police stopping connery works so well timing wise Mm. when connery rolls up on coster and holds him from behind he says it's me it's me because if connery is held up a little bit longer who knows what happens if connery is not held up he coster probably never gets to the hotel so all mm. of the timing works so well. And De Palma just does a great job choreographing choreographing both of these scenes together. I hadn't thought yeah. about that at all. You're totally right. It is the exact 45 seconds or whatever mm-hmm. between where Con- where Costner gets into the hotel and when Connery shows up. I love, But I love the moment where he punches the dude. He's going to help you. <laughs> he goes, my friend just got killed. I don't care. Bam! You think he cares now? Yeah, I love <laughs> Let's go. He's ready. You want to do it now? No. You want to yeah. go to mad now? Come on, you son of a bitch. What? Easy. You talk to me like that in front of my son? Yeah. Fuck you and your family. <laughs> like, really? That's what you're worried about, dude? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, also, thing? just just for a second, just to talk about Kevin Costner's performance more. I mean, playing 
playing genuine shock mm-hmm. is very, very difficult. I mean, the, the end of Captain Phillips with Tom Hanks, he has that amazing moment at the end where the doctor's checking him out. But as he comes in, you see he is in a rage haze. Like, he comes in, he doesn't know, like, he knows where he's supposed to go, he doesn't know exactly. And you see, he's kind of looking around, and he's out of breath, and he doesn't know what to do. And as soon as he spots Capone walking down the steps, he becomes laser-focused. I mean, that that type of, of genuine emotion is very, very difficult um, to access. Well, and I think he's fully prepared to die in that moment. Mm-hmm. He is fully prepared to trade his life for Capone. And he goes to pull his gun yeah. and the entire, you know, all of Capone's henchmen all draw. And that's when Malone comes in and grabs him. Not this says, way. Not this way. And, yeah, and unquestionably saves his life. Yes. Mm. Agreed. Agreed. And, and De Niro going... Uh, you, you got you're nothing <laughs> you but just nothing. A, a lot of talk and a badge. There's not a lot of talk and a badge. You're here because you got nothing. You got nothing in court. You don't got the bookkeeper. You got nothing. Nothing. And if you were a man, you would have done it now. You don't got a thing, you punk. <laughs> you don't got the bookkeeper. You got nothing. I love it. It's great. <laughs> and, he, and he even says, and if you were a man, you would have done it by now. Right, right, right. This idea yeah. of manhood. Yeah. <laughs> In the next scene, is this the first time that Coster smokes a cigarette in the whole movie? No Ooh. idea. No, what? he smokes on the bridge too. I think. Mm. Oh, that's right. That's right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and now we're back at the house, and there's like a three shot. Um, and basically, what we find out is now that that guy's gone, the DA is not moving forward. He doesn't have the witness. Yeah. He doesn't want to get embarrassed. There's some strange, fantastic patterning in that three shot scene there. Like one, there's a great wallpaper in the kitchen, but then there's this this wall behind Coster that's shingles, which I've never seen on the inside of a house. It's like exterior wood shingle pattern that you would normally only see on the outside of a house. And I'm like, oh, in the 30s, did people put this on the inside of houses? I guess they did. But it create <laughs> it creates kind of two area, you know, two visual areas. Costner's in the shingle area, and the other guy and uh, Connery and Garcia are in the kitchen. So, so since I brought him up earlier, this is another Bruce Block thing, which is uh, it's called a surface division, which is creating uh, frames within frames. I'm Steve, you know much more about this than me, but right. but but just those different textures isolates people within their own frames. Um, what well, Alan J. Pakula or Pakula does that a lot. You know, he's he's really great about using the widescreen to make something happening in the left side of the frame, something happening in the right side of the frame, and having sort of two simultaneous actions may be happening without George Miller too, you know. And then he gets a call from his wife. And then this moment happens. And I, this doesn't ring right to me, which is... Uh, Does it ring left? <laughs> is that it? I'm sorry? You heard me. My question is, are we done? Yes, I think we're done. I don't understand this cha- turn in his character. I really don't. You mean Coster's character? Yeah. Okay. Like, for me, I mean, like, he literally was just about to pull his gun and shoot Capone. Mm -hmm. They've gone through all this stuff. They lost their witness, and now he's just ready to give up? Mm -hmm. I don't understand it. Well, I think part of it is being, you know, being presented with those real-world consequences. Like, not just the fact that his friend died, but, like, he's the one who found him. 
I think being presented with that can can really shake you at kind of like the tectonic core. But also, he's like, I don't know what else to do. Like, we have lost this witness. Everything that we could tie to that book is gone. Like, where do we go now? Like, he, he I think he's just sort of, he's at a loss right now. And he doesn't, I don't think he knows the depths to which Malone can go to get more information. Well, I, I, I'm with Shannon on that because I think, too, it's like, Costner lost his shit after the death of Charles Martin Smith. But then once Connery kind of calms him down, Costner comes back to himself where he realizes like, okay, look, he doesn't want to just murder Capone. He Mm -hmm. wants to, he wants to get him through the law, you know? Mm -hmm. And so that, I mean, it's sort of like he's had a little bit of a heart, like someone rebooted him and he's back to his old operating system, you know, of like, all right, well, wait, well now what do we do? You know? To me, and and it's, it's, it's a minor point, but, but like, one option is I don't want anyone else to get hurt. I just saw this person murdered, but he's not really, that's not really happening in the scene. He's not, that's that, that would be a way to do it. And the other option is I don't know what to do next, but to me, the way they've set up the character, I don't think, then you say to Malone, I don't know what to do next. What should, what should we do? Or can we think of it? Just saying, no, I guess we're done. Seems really weird and out of character for me. Well, um, I think it's also the fact with the, the ledger or the book, I mean, that was not the result of good police work. That was the result of luck. Like, they did not know that that book was going to be there. That's they, true. They, they were going to stop the shipments. So I, I think it's just kind of like, are, are we going to get another lucky break like that again? I'm not willing to risk one of these guys' lives on a chance. You're saying that we shot in at a game that was above our head. It appears so. It does appear so to Mr. Wallace. Well, he's dead. And the DA is going to drop the case. Damn it, man. He will not go into court without a witness. And he will not go into court without Capone's bookkeeper, Walter Payne. And what are you prepared to do now? What would you have me do? Watch Sean Connery in this scene. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, the nonverbal acting in this yeah. film is incredible. You see him connect the dots of this idea, this idea, like get to this idea that he is going to go and get this information from one last time from his buddy, uh, who's the chief of police. Well, and and while he's doing that, he does a kind of a stalling technique, and asks what his wife wanted on the phone. My wife, yeah, she's sitting in some room surrounded by people she doesn't know, going over kitchen color charts. I, I love this line. Some part of the world still cares what color the kitchen is. <laughs> And it also touches on what we talked about before. Connery says, It's nice being married, eh? Yes. Again, it's this juxtaposition. And it also, so many layers are happening with Connery's performance because it's just what you say, John. He's putting, while he's having this domestic conversation, he's putting together the plan of what he's going to do next. Well, Stephen, I think this is all what we're fighting for stuff, mm-hmm. right? It's yeah. like being being in World War One or World War Two and looking at a picture of your sweetheart in your wallet. They're fighting for people to be able to care what color the kitchen is painted. You, right. you know what I mean? Like it's it's sort of that concept right. of you know the the people on the edges of society have to be fighting to protect it to keep everyone on the inside of society you know safe and and not having to deal with this kind of stuff yeah exactly uh and what connery finally says is get back to the da and stall it we end up at a pool hall and there is mike the chief of police shooting some pool and we step outside <laughs> all right but i got nothing to say to you 
All right. <laughs> Never thought of casting John Roca as the Irish cop <laughs> until this moment. <laughs> you're, what you're doing here with the rest of the fellas? With your quick, quick, quick side note, and I know we're trying to be fast, but if, you, if you've never seen John Roca in period costume, <laughs> a couple of years ago, he and I and Mr. Mike Kalinowski were hired to uh, work the premiere of this show on Amazon. What was it? The Last Tycoon, John? Last Is Tycoon. That the name? Yeah. So uh, we, they had Kalinowski and I dressed up like reporters. We've got the giant flashbulbs, and they dressed John up as a director. Oh. And he's got this giant hat and these, oh. these knickers. <laughs> and, it was the best. and Kalinowski and I hated life. We're like, oh, this is so crappy. This is not fun at all. Oh, but John was having a blast. Everybody loved John because he was manning the photo booth, directing, <laughs> directing <laughs> like Kelsey Grammer on how he should stand. I, I hope, John, you get more period work because I actually realized that you always notice this when you watch period stuff is that John, you have one of these faces that would translate so well into thirties, forties, fifties stuff like huh. the era of when Very men fun. used to wear hats and suits. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I yeah. feel like you've got a, you would plop right into the past, you know, oh. in the, in the way that some people wouldn't. You know. oh, that's very kind. <laughs> Roca chomping on a cigar is a great sight. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Let's, let's restage sorry, wrong number. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, John can play the Irish cop. Oh, do you happen to know how many second avenues there are in the city of New York alone? Um, we end up out in the pouring rain with Mike. Another example of that shot, right? Half the screen's blue and half the screen's red, mm. you know, and they oh, yeah. start in the blue and they come into mm. the red. Very you know. That's yeah, a great yeah. point. And what's so interesting, because I think Mike's character is pretty unknowable. Like, because mm-hmm. he says he's basically, you know, Malone's asking him for more information. And he says, I just risked my life for you. If they knew it was me, I'm dead. I need to find that book. You fucking nuts, man. You're fucking out of your mind. Yeah. And what that means is, is that. At the same moment he was conspiring to let Nitty kill the accountant, he was also the guy who was giving information to Malone, and he was trying to stop Malone from being involved with Capone to save his life. So he's doing – he's like a triple agent basically, Mm -hmm. right? you know? Yeah, because basically you get the sense that, look, it should have been you killed too. I bargained with them to have to only kill the accountant and not get you killed too. You know? And yet I'm also the one who gave you them the, you the information on the shipment to – we assume that that's what happened. Like right. that's a lot of complicated stuff. All of this is sort of subtext, but we can assume these guys came up together. Yeah. You know, they might even be kids together. Yeah. You know, they've known each other a long time. They were at one point best friends. Get your hands off. You owe me, Jimmy. I don't owe you nothing. My people are being killed. Your people. We're yeah. your people. Jimmy. You're my people. Yes. It's the divide, right? Like he's chosen to go a certain path. Like in the past, you, I imagine Malone turned a blind eye to the stuff that Mike was doing because it's like, look. I'm just a B cop. I'm not going to move higher than a B cop because I don't want to be on the take. I don't want to do these things, but I'm also not going to go after my friend or call my friend out. Like we have years together. So I'm going to let him do his thing. Now that he's chosen a side, it threatens their friendship. And so you've got this side that's corrupt and this side that isn't. And now these, this inevitable confrontation of these two strong alphas uh, was bound to happen at some point, and now it's come to be finally at this point in the movie. 
Well, I like that idea. I mean, I feel like they were definitely in the academy together, but I like the suggestion of yours, Steve, that they maybe even knew each other before. Yeah. Because when the fight starts, it's a street fight. I mean, the the captain, the first thing he does is pull off Connery's coat and pull it down around yeah. his shoulders so he can't lift his arms. That's just such a dirty street fight <laughs> move, you know, and then punches him. Yeah. You know, it's almost like, you know, kicking him in the shins and then punching him, you know. The way I think of Connery through this is that he's almost been in limbo. Like mm. he signed on to be a cop, but then what it meant to be a cop, what Mike was doing, he couldn't do. Right, exactly. And so, but these are still his people in his mind, so he can't fully separate them, but he can't fully mm. be himself either. And now with Ness, he's be able to actually be himself mm. and sees that these aren't really his people. You're my people! Yes, we are your people. Fucking run with the dagles. Ah. Mike, they've ruined this town. Huh? And again, this is the Irish-Italian thing, too, that's coming into this moment. I need to know where this guy is. I need to know now. And I'm going to rat you out for all the shit that I know that you've done in your life. I'm going to turn you over. This is a dead man talking to me, Jim. That's it. I actually think this is, I think they probably had fights before. I think when they were oh, coming yeah. up and they're at a bar and they, like, it wasn't, it feels almost like, They've punched each other before. They've resolved oh, their yeah. differences with fists in the past. I bet they fought over the same woman before. I bet they've had fight like this over the same woman before. I would put money on that. Something I love about this fight scene too, I just love when the choreography is character specific. Yes. You know? Mm. Yes. And so the fact that, you know, that that he he starts with that dirty street fighting move. And then that when Connery recovers, he kidney punches him. Yeah. Yep. You know what I mean? Like from the back. It's just such a dirty fight right from the beginning. Well, and by the it's, way, this is the chief of police, Jones. He doesn't have to be in this fight at all. The second he no. strikes him, he can put his ass in jail. But this is, this is old school friends having it out. Right. No holds barred. This is a better fight than Roy Jones and Mike Tyson Jr. Mike Tyson was the other day for sure. This is two old men fighting, and you can feel it. When he, one of them grabs a fucking two by four, for God's sake, <laughs> like this is to the fight. this is to the end, man. <laughs> Again, I got to harp on that color. It's like so they run from the blue into the red. The whole fight happens in the red, and there's mm. a moment when Sean's going to lose, where we're on an upshot of the police chief, and he's all red, and it looks like he's going to win. And when Connery beats him out, they take him back out of the red, into the rain, into the blue. And then that's when Connery asserts his dominance that he's won. You know, that the light side is won, not the dark side. Good point. And then the gun comes out and he says, You tell me, or you're going to the hospital or the fucking morgue. (laughs) And we cut to, and we cut to the DA who's like, no, I'm out. You know, I'm not going to do this. And Ness says, don't tell me, sir, about making a fool out of yourself. I have men out there risking something more than that. And I'm told that we have a lead and we are following that lead at risk to more than our standing. And then we cut to Capone. Again, he's with Red. Again, we've got that sort of music box score. We have his theme playing. And now he's he's playing to the crowd again. Hey, what, about, what about that court date? I'm going to tell you something. Somebody messes with me, I'm going to mess with him. <laughs> Somebody steals from me, I'm going to say you stole, not talk to him for spitting on a sidewalk. It's, it's sort of like at the beginning where he says, you know, back where I came from, they said you had to, you got more with a kind word and a gun than with just a kind word. But I don't do that here, which is this right. weird sort of like, we all know you're doing that here. Yeah. So, and now he says, look, 
why aren't they coming after me for the crimes, the big crimes I'm committing? Why aren't they coming after me for this stupid crime? He knows he's breaking the laws. He knows it, but he's trying to dictate how they come after him. The acting in that shot is so good, but it's such a beautiful shot, right? Because again, mm. it's another one of these upshots yeah. on De Niro giving him all this power. Plus, De Palma is always trying to use, every time he's got real sets, he's trying to sl smash that production value into mm. the movie as best as he can. And so the backdrop of whatever this opera house is in Chicago is just spectacular. Yeah. But what I love is that for the first time, it feels like in this upshot where we get this, this, this shot of De Niro, on the edges of the screen, the reporter's shoulders are edging in a little bit. So even though it's a heroic upshot of De Niro, it's a little bit like he's being encroached on, like maybe his power is somewhat now being slightly diminished. You know, the fact that we have these foreground elements that we generally haven't had before. I totally agree. They're, 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 and, the, and again, you know, saying watch De Niro's performance is kind of a ridiculous thing at this point. But <laughs> after kind of playing to the crowd, there's a moment where he turns away and then he comes back. Well, I'll tell you one more thing. You got an all-out price fight, you wait till the fight's over, one guy's left standing, and that's how you know who won. We're going to be back into a long, continuous shot again, which means that something bad's going to happen. De Palma's DP talks about that there's a shot like this in almost every one of De Palma's films. I think he calls it like the stalker shot or something like that. But if you go back to almost all of De Palma's films before this, there's like this... There's these lurky kind of shots, you know. Well, and it's so well done. And we see Nitty outside the window and then we go into uh, Malone's place. Uh, this is the, the other uh, henchman bad guy who's very Peter Laurie-ish in my mind. First, though, there's that close-up, too, on the on the matchbook. The matchbook. Right. So we definitively know the importance of coming across that matchbook later, you know. What's so interesting about the scene is this guy comes in and we're in, it's just as you say, it's the stalker shot. We're into POVs. We see Sean Connery just doing normal things. And the tension is building because we're like, Turn around, turn around. You got to see the, you know, it's so stressful. One of the things I find so interesting about the scene is it's impossible to really know when Connery knew this guy was there. You're kind of watching him. And then there's a moment, you know, we go down through the kitchen. We see the back stairs. We turn around. We go towards the other room and we see Connery. And again, he's at that record player where we saw the sawed off shotgun before. And just as the guy comes in, he turns and he's got that shotgun. Well, there is a moment where he the the camera is peering to around the corner and Connery looks up and the camera shoves back, jumps back behind the corner. So I think yeah. that's where you understand that Connery's seen him and then slowly lulling him to a false sense of security so that when he rolls up on it and he turns around on him, yeah, with it's that when he's pouring himself a drink. <laughs> Isn't that just like a wop? Brings a knife to a gunfight. Per perfectly within his rights to shoot the guy, but he still lets him go because he's a he's a good cop. Yeah. But I don't think I don't know why. Why doesn't he arrest the guy? Like, well, look, that that might have been. I mean, subtract Nitty, he probably is going to have arrested the guy. You know what I mean? Like, he's got the gun, the other guy's got the knife. He's chasing him out of the house. No, like, he says get out of here. He's right. telling him to leave. He's not going to arrest the guy. By the way, is this the moment we should talk about uh, uh, Malone's racism? He's that's exactly angry, what it, it yes. literally. That's it. That is what's in my notes right here. He said you you went with the dagos. Now he's calling this guy a wop. He's got he's got some issues he needs to work out in 1940. Whatever well, this is. Well, and what's interesting is that's the thing he uses to test Stone. Is he turns his oh, right. racism right. up? Yeah. And so 
I think he's complicated. I think there's no question yeah. that he is there's an Irish Italian thing, mm-hmm. but I also think he loves George Stone. Like he really likes Giuseppe. It's a great point. It's a great yeah. point. Yeah. Like most pe- men or humans, complicated. By the way, I, I, I the term WAP, which is oh, it's horrible, obviously, but I just want to point out for those of you who don't know that comes from without papers. Mm. It is different than WAP, which right. is also an acronym. Look at you trying to get all cool all of a sudden. <laughs> Look at you trying to be cool, Steve Jones. Trying to get with the kids and their music. I have to try as hard as I possibly can, John. I spent three weeks writing that joke just hoping someone would reference it. There's nothing cooler than spending three weeks preparing to make a joke to make yourself look cool. That is the coolest. Agreed. Going back to our podcast, it's so torturous now when you know because... We're still um, in it. We're still in it, Steve. When Connery comes out to examine the back, it's so shitty because he actually looks in the area where nitty is mm-hmm. going to be so it's kind of mean you know like like he's he's basically told us no there is nobody there you know yeah. and then of course when he leaves he comes you know to palma cheats and puts him back in a spot that he's not supposed to be yeah. you know? well, it's it's exactly the same as uh yes this is much more diverting than accounting mm-hmm. there's this moment of we feel so great. He caught the guy. He's going to be okay. And right as that moment happens, he turns and there's Nitty. First of all, I think this is, you know, this is like Bonnie and Clyde. This is the unbelievable amount of bullets hits this guy. James Caan and Godfather 1. Exactly, yeah. Uh-huh. We never put this many uh, squibs on a guy before. <laughs> um, oh you guys haven't done the godfather we have not um by the way i think i read that connery had never had a squib on him before yeah he apparently did not right he's always the guy that puts shoots people not get shot and uh, he did not enjoy this experience apparently um, um the way his we see his foot move when he starts to crawl across the floor there's something uh, that's great foot acting they had to bring in actually another a foot specialist. That wasn't Connery's foot. He needed a foot specialist. Yeah. Um, I think Barishnikov, right? Isn't that who they said? And then from this unbelievably violent scene, we go. <laughs> Let's just try to roll on. <laughs> then I couldn't. <laughs> um, from this violent scene, speaking of ballet, we go to the opera. Um, and in this crazy, man, I think it's a split diopter. It might even be just a composited shot with the right. opera singer in the foreground and De Niro way, way in a box in the background. Um, and, but, but then we actually zoom in on Capone. So maybe maybe it is, uh, it's not a composited shot. And but again, De Niro's performance, it seems to me that he is both deeply moved by the opera mm. and reacting to the news Nitty is giving him about uh, Malone at the same time. That's it's amazing. I, I wonder how, how that shot was accomplished because they do just seem to zoom in on De Niro. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like within the same shot, they don't really slide the opera singer out. Yeah. It just seems like the camera pushes past them. So. so it can't be a split diopter then. So maybe it's just a super, super wide lens. But it's amazing, especially to have the white specter of death, you know, come into sure. that shot to whisper in his ear. That's yeah. amazing. And now Ness and Stone show up. Again, same shot of the street sign and the address. So we, you know, we're hitting this again. 
And Ness comes in through the window because he knows something's wrong and sees that trail of blood. Mm. I think this scene, this moment is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Incre- music. Incredible. The music incredible. is incredible. When he calls out mm-hmm. to Andy Garcia, that's like, it's so, it's so real. Yeah. And you know, a lot of times when we're watching films, we get caught up in the artistry. We get caught up in the, the movie making of it. And this is probably one of the most excruciating death scenes in, in the history of cinema. Oh, I mean, yeah. you, you know, you have certain death scenes that are like, oh, this is, it's, it's beautifully made. This is what it would probably be like. Someone gasping for breath, trying to get out this last message. The thing where he is reaching for the paper and Costner thinks he's reaching for St. Jude. And the fact that his arm doesn't work yeah. and he has to use his other arm to push St. Jude out so he can grab right. the paper. Yeah. It is right. just heart-wrenching. Well, and it's, I think one of the things that makes it so hard is I think we assume that he's going to be dead, that they're mm-hmm. going to find a dead body. And the fact they find this guy just barely struggling to stay alive to do yeah. this one thing is just... Uh, well, and I have to say, I think within Mamet, there is, there is the slightest, tiniest darkly comicness to the fact of Connor, you know, like, we're yeah. just like, God damn it. No, not the fucking, you know, metal. I, give me the goddamn piece of paper. Like mm-hmm. you almost I like not laugh. I don't know. You know what I mean? Like there's just something uh, to me. It just makes it, it's that much more complicated and excruciating of a scene. Mm-hmm. Certainly this year for the Academy, they had no problem like giving someone a simultaneous lifetime achievement slash truly earned oscar award at the same time you know what i mean like yeah it dovetailed perfectly of like oh let's reward connery for three decades of incredible work while you know for a performance that is mm. you know is the epitome of of a best supporting actor a- absolutely also i, I want to throw this in and i don't know if you guys considered this at all it's operatic in the same way that he's watching an opera their juxtaposition right. of both uh moments happening where Capone is watching that opera and uh, play feeling everything just for the audience who might be watching. I don't believe for a second he's moved by anything he's watching on the stage. It's all play acting. Uh, And then you see what happens with Connery. That's true pain. That's true tears. That's true sadness. Yet both scenes are operatic in different ways. Um, And the music helps to have that. But also Connery writhing around on the ground with the groans. And the gurgling of the blood, and then the final missive to uh, to Ness when he says, "What are you prepared to do?" And then that's it. Like that's the last message he gives him, you know. And and yeah, Steve, you said he said it a couple times before, but this is like the last thing he wants to leave him with. Don't forget this. It isn't take care of the family or finish the job. It's what are you prepared to do? Because I just gave my life for this so what are you going to do you know right. he puts it well, on and that's that combo of great writing great directing and great mm. performance yep. you know yep. mamet set this up De palma filmed it just beautifully and connery brought it home yep. you know it, well, john i contend i think maybe capone does i think he's got that strange kind of narcissism you know when he's watching his stories mm-hmm. it's like he really is feeling it's it's almost like if you cut to a villain now and he's crying at some sad thing he watched on netflix but then he goes and turns around and kills someone you know it's like right but or it's but we've seen he's attacked he's attacking ness for you know insulting him in front of his son it's kind of like it's like his feelings are the feelings that matter the most nobody else's feelings matter right you know or something like that so i almost feel like he is 
he is into his opera. He doesn't care about other humans. But I, I don't know. If I, it, my, my contention is uh, we've seen De Niro play sadness or cry in movies and be authentic as hell. Watch Awakenings. But when he's playing the component, there's just that extra level of, you know, the extra thing he does with his face that seems inauthentic to me, that seems like he's playing. And I think he's doing it on purpose as a performance because Capone would show off his feelings. He's in the Mm. he's in the balcony with the spotlight on him, you know, and even when Nitty comes down to tell him what's up, he's almost irritated by Nitty interrupting his performance to the performance he's watching, and I don't mean De Niro's performance, I mean Capone's performance to show right. off to the rest of Chicago how much he's feeling this play. Exactly. You know? No, I, th- I think, or maybe we can meet in the middle where it's like, but it's like in his mo, it's like he thinks he is feeling it a even if thousand. he's doing it for... Agree yeah, with you okay. a thousand percent, yes. Yeah, okay. Enthusiasms. <laughs> Enthusiasms. <laughs> I, I actually think that's what, is that he is playing the role of the great man. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, on some level. And so he is, you know, the, he plays to the reporters. He's yeah. in the beautiful places. He's in the, He is this guy from the street who is pretending to be the self-made. He's living the yeah. American dream. Yeah, suppose. You know, he's he's ra- raised himself up from nothing. And now he's participating in all the highest culture, yeah. you know. And Steve, talking about that thing you're saying your, your film teacher talks about, just the contrast of cutting when we cut wide and we're actually getting to see Andy Garcia do some great oh, acting, yeah. you know, too, when Stone, uh, when Capo- when Malone has died, and then we cut to that close up on the uh, the champagne glass or wine glass, and then widen out to the you know Capone playing the big man again. Now you know hobnobbing with the opera director. It's just a great contrasty shot. And now we're heading off to the train station. I I, I can't. I can't say enough about this sequence. Mm. It's not, everyone always talks about the Odessa Steps sequence from Battleship Potemkin and that uh, De Palma is referencing it. And that is certainly true, but that is the least, uh, to, I mean, that's great. But like, there is so much that goes on in this scene. Uh, unbelievable. We're going to show up at the train station. We have to stop the bookkeeper before he gets on the train. We've got Elliot Ness and Stone. They split up. And then what we're going to see is Every single detail. Yeah. Well, see, before we get into the train, just on the way to the train station, there are like three amazing shots. Like one, we do a thing where when the car is coming fast, De Palma does a thing where he puts a camera in the ground. And for the first time, we've usually been doing these more like top down majestic shots of the streets. And this time the car rolls over us and he's never does a shot like that in the entire film up until that point. And then similar to that airplane shot, then the next shot is they cut to the spinning tire of the car. But I know it's that shot's happening on a stage, you know, and then we pan up from the spinning wheel to Stone and Costner in the car as we pan around them and stuff. And it's just those are I mean, those sh- both those shots are only a few seconds, but they they're not anything we've really seen up until that point, And they really help set that whole like like we're barreling toward destiny, you know, at the train station. I want to digress just for a moment. Uh so the, I think I might have told this story before on the podcast, but uh, there, there's something to Palma I heard about Carlitos Way that the writer tells. So uh, <clears throat> I don't know how many people have seen Carlitos Way, but there's an amazing scene after Al Pacino, very beginning of the movie, movie and Al Pacino's, I think, with his nephew and they go into this pool hall and his nephew is going to be making a drug deal. And Al Pacino realizes that, this, that they're going to get betrayed. And he does this whole thing to set up where he actually takes out all the drug dealers. Right. It's a fantastic scene. 
So the writer, when he wrote the movie, this was his favorite scene in the movie. When he saw the rough cut of the movie, he said, this is the, my favorite scene in the movie. And they take the scene to the rough cut to the studio and they're watching it with the studio heads. And the studio heads say, we love the movie, except that pool hall scene. It is way too long and it's way too slow. And De Palma says, you know what? I felt the same thing. You're 100% right. It's totally too slow. I will, I will speed it up. <laughs> and they walk outside. They're in the parking lot. And he says, what? that's the best scene in the movie. How could you say it's too slow? And De Palma says, no, no, they are absolutely right. But when they say they think it's too slow, what they actually mean is it's not slow enough. Because we have to slow it down because we didn't do a good enough job showing every single detail, laying out all the geography and building up the tension properly. That's so smart. he went back, he recut it, he made the scene longer. That's so smart. They go in back to the screening room, show it to the studio heads who say, wow, it's great. Thanks so much for speeding up that scene. And De Palma goes, no, thank you guys. If you hadn't said that, I would never have known to speed it up. <laughs> and I think that this... This scene is that to the biggest degree. It is so oh, slow. It is. And it's so amazing. And and what De Palma does is show you all the details. Because it's so slow, we know that some bad guys are going to show up. We don't know what else is going to happen. And so when we hear footsteps, it's like, oh, is that the bad guys? When the sailor shows up, it's like, oh, is that the bad guy? We see a guy that's kind of waiting and lights a cigarette. And then, no, no, a woman shows up. And that's not the bad guys. And then we see the woman with the baby stroller and the luggage and the stairs. We hear the sound of the announcers. We see a couple enter. Now we're worried about this couple. They go past the mom at the bottom of the stairs and we're going, how is she going to get up the stairs with the luggage? And what if the bad guys show up? And and the tension continues to build. And then a sailor comes in and sits down. And you're like, no, you're going to be in the way. Like, what's going to happen? Ness looks up at the clock. Time is running out. We see a guy whose check keeps checking his watch. There's another guy reading the paper. There is something, again, almost darkly comic about the slowness of the scene oh, and about... Yeah. And about oh, yeah. the the amount of different ways that this poor woman tries to start to because bef before she even settles on the horrible slowest way on earth that she could take the baby up there she at first tries to put the baby in her arms like she's gonna just pull the thing up with you know and then that doesn't work and then she, mom says here you go we ready and she starts bringing up the baby up the stairs thunk thunk each step that goes up the footsteps are loud the ding of the elevator is loud uh the sound is very subjective and you know normally uh when you when you do sound design what a sound designer will do they'll get every single sound that could possibly exist in a space so even just for ambiences like in this case you might have the sound of of wind you might have the sound of people talking you might have the sound of trains you might have the sound of footsteps you and you would have seven or eight layers of ambiences that you'd put on your mixing board along with all the foley all the effects all that stuff hmm. and then you would try to create a realistic mix between all these things subjective sound means we're going to throw all that away and we're going to make some sounds that are very quiet become loud part of what that does is it focuses your brain in on these things in this way that's not naturalistic <laughs> But it also makes me realize that all that selling of Elliot as family man and his own baby and all that stuff, it all is, does it really important work to then mm. 
yeah, right. selling why these two are so important. I yeah. mean, not just that he's a good guy, and of course he's got to help him, but they've made it as personal as possible. Yeah. You know. And so Elliot Ness runs down the stairs to help her get the baby carriage up the stairs. Here, let me... oh, thank you so much. What's so great is that he keeps looking around. He's not behaving the way he's supposed to. <laughs> um, and then she starts to go like, hey, maybe I don't want this guy pulling the baby up the stairs. Yeah. Like, Yo. Is there some problem I can help you with? No. Well, there's the perfect irony, right? Like, had he actually not gone to do this, these two crooks that come in, they might have spotted him and vice versa. Mm. So the baby ends up being the perfect cover for him. Like, they don't notice him because they just clock him as a guy with a baby carriage. Great point. Great point. Um, and then in comes the accountant with some with some other bad guys. Um, and the mom is going, okay, let me take you away. That's fine. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um, he's not letting go. Yeah. And then out comes the shotgun. Well, isn't this the guy that Costner actually yeah, broke guy, this guy's yeah. nose, he's right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Over the bridge of his nose. Yeah. Costner kills one of the guys. And what does he do when he opens fire with his shotgun? Shotgun needs two hands. Yep. Let's go with the baby carriage. Um, I I can't imagine how complicated this all must have been to film. Well, and the, every, every, like you said, every little piece, like there is an insert of Costner just spinning around and his hip kind of hitting the the uh, the baby carriage to just start it mm. just down one little thing. Like every little moment is... Uh, is taken care of. It's spectacular in that regard. It's well, kind of crazy. And one of the things you have to do is for every shot the baby carriage is in the background, you have continuity because you have to know, well, how far down the stairs yeah. Yeah. is the... Okay, bring <laughs> the baby carriage up two more steps. Okay, bring it down a step. Like, <laughs> so complicated. Um, and the gunfight is great, particularly because you see everything that's happening. Yeah. Um, and Garcia doing a little chow yun fat. He's got two guns. Oh, well, his appearance... Like, because first it's just Ness... And he's firing at guys, and then there's a guy that has him dead to rights, mm -hmm. is about to kill him, and then a, gets shot right in the head. And as he goes down, we see Andy Garcia framed perfectly between these two pillars on a zoom shot. Yeah. Uh, it's right. unbelievable. This poor sailor gets shot. Sailor gets shot. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ness is shooting right over the baby. Another sailor gets shot again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, no, the scene is just absolutely gorgeous. He's running downstairs. The baby carriage is going downstairs. Uh, one guy is reloading. Ness's shotgun is out, so he's pulled his revolver, is, is shooting with that. Then the revolver is out, and then up comes Stone. And this last moment throws the gun to Ness, slides in, and catches the baby carriage with his legs while his weapon is aimed in the other direction. <laughs> yeah. And then, see, like, again, that contrast. Then we cut to a close on the baby and then truck out to include Stone holding, pointing his gun on the guy dead to rights in the same shot. Yeah. You know, just the contrast of that shot and is the, so amazing. And the baby is smiling because somewhere in the world, someone cares what color the room is. <laughs> all this stuff is happening. Right. And the and baby is just off, like, this was a fun ride. <laughs> off camera, someone is doing some crazy stuff to keep this baby happy while everyone else around him is trying to do their thing. I almost expect the sailor to crawl into the crib and go, earn this, and then die. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, you just, I never thought about it, John, but like, 
<laughs> this mom and this child. Yeah. Like, talk about the family stories, you yeah. know. All these people. And, you know, and people might say, oh, it's convenient that these people get up. No, it's actually that time. People have a desire to help. People have a desire to stop something. It's a baby that's perilously close to dying. And so people just revere new life more than current life or old life. And so the sacrifice there to jump to try to stop that carriage from going down. Because I've said so, I've read some reviews where people are like, oh, it's convenient that they all jump up to stop the bullets that are going for Costner. I'm like, no, it makes sense because they're men trying, and that's the way it was back in the 40s. And it's just somewhat nowadays too, but the, to got to stop the baby from possibly dying, you know, it matters. So yeah, it, I, it I all think works. It, it's, it, that's a weird criticism. Like, yeah. I think it makes sense. Yeah. You and Shannon talking about setting up stuff too. Again, it's it's beautifully earned that because in the moment that we introduce Stone, we talk about he's Hawkeye, he's the Clint mm. Barton. So we've given it permission so that then he can, ju- you know, you got him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got him. And even before that moment, because there's like first, I mean, just the the slide in and all the all that stuff that led the up to this moment is amazing. Yeah. And then there's just you know the the bad guys got the accountant. See, I'm walking out with the bookkeeper. And the bookkeeper and me are driving away. And Ness looks at Stone. Even before the you got him. Yep. There's like an eye contact moment that's so great. Mm-hmm. And then Ness lowers his gun. They, we're doing a countdown. One! We push in on uh, Stone. And Ness says, Take him. Shot through the head. Two. Such, such a satisfying um, moment to watch a guy eat a bullet. <laughs> and it is nasty and it and, and there's the reaction from the accountant and it's so you're right steve it is such a like hawkeye sort of badass kind of thing mm-hmm. which you which you gotta you have to set it up otherwise you're like oh wait so why can this guy just magically shoot this guy and why not you know and you're like well because we told you in in the in the second reel um, by the way, I, I checked this this sequence is from the moment they enter the train station until right now, nine minutes and 30 seconds. Wow. That is a long sequence. And it is. And it's fantastic. Yeah, it's so good. We're in court and the bookkeeper is spilling the beans, <laughs> saying everything. In a three-year period, I personally dispersed monies to Mr. Capone in excess of one... And a third million dollars. And Capone is sitting there smiling. It's interesting that they're talking about money. This is the first time that the whole courtroom is this deep green. And we haven't really mm. seen green in this movie up until now. And I, I, I mean, I don't know. I wonder. And, the, and Nitty is there and he hands Capone a paper and smiles some more. And Ness sees that Nitty is wearing a gun and you know, ask for the bailiff. And he's like, okay, let's get this guy out. I don't want any trouble, you know, follow me out. And the bailiff comes and they go outside. And again, another beautifully shot sequence. We're outside in this great low angle that shows off the amazing ceiling in the space. They ask for the gun and he's resistant. And he's like, I've got, I got a permit. (laughs) I love what his permit is as they take everything out. The permit is basically a note from the mayor. To whom it may concern, please extend to the bearer, Mr. Frank Nitty, all possible courtesy and consideration. William Thompson, mayor of the city of Chicago. <laughs> it, essentially, it is a literal and true get out of jail free card. So, looks, looks legal to me. <laughs> yeah. So I have a family member who had a card like this. Oh, wow. 
So my great grandfather, uh, who was you know owned one of the construction companies that worked on the Golden Gate Bridge, so he was a fairly prominent guy in San Francisco, you know, in the thirties, forties, fifties. He had a house in Palm Springs, and this is the story that I heard. He would drive from San Francisco to Palm Springs as fast as he possibly could, and when a cop would pull over, he he had played golf with the governor of California, mm. and he pulled out a card that said. Don't give this guy a speeding ticket. And, the, and he would hand it to the highway patrol, and they would look at it, and they'd go, go right along, Mr. Hilt. Wow. wow. Yep. That is the story that I have heard. I've never seen the card. He died when I was about eight years old. Um, but, yep. that's So stuff like this happened. He wow. was not actually a mobster. That, was that you know of. As far as I know. That I know of. As we pulled out his stuff and we've emptied his pockets and we looked down and what do we see is one of the things that was in his pockets, the red matchbook. Mm. I love the way he handles it because you don't, you see the red matchbook, you don't exactly see Costner take it. You kind of see something happen and then he's got a cigarette and he starts to light it and opens up the red matchbook and there is beautiful, Beautiful. Once again, here's an accidental moment of police work. Just like them finding the book he didn't know that there was the address on the matchbook. It's accidental, but it works so well, and it's Perfect. a great plant, like you said, Shannon, because he's frustrated that nothing they've pulled out of Nitty's pockets has, has, has solved the reason why Capone is yawning in court when he should be scared out of his mind, and it isn't until he pulls the matchbook. It, that upshot, though, it's so interesting because I think maybe if you didn't have the production value of those ceilings, if you mm. did that extreme of a shot and just like a flat ceiling, it probably wouldn't work. Mm. You know, like it would be it would it wouldn't convey the same thing that it does. But but because it gives you so much depth and there's so much production value from that backdrop so that then to do that interesting thing of the realization to have the camera tilt up 45 degrees, you know, like. You usually, usually, if people do that, they do it the opposite way. You start high and then tilt down. The right. fact that you know De Palma did an opposite thing because it's but, an extreme upshot. I mean, it, no, Costner, Costner couldn't look more like Superman when he's lighting that cigarette. <laughs> you know, what I mean, the way he's framed is just like it's the most heroic upshot. Well, and the thing that just—I can't believe it's taken me long this long to make it occur to me. But it, it, you actually helped me figure this out, Steve, in talking about the red and the blue when Mike is fighting uh, with Malone, mm-hmm. is I just suddenly went, oh, what is Capone's color? Is red. He's oh. always got red. Mm-hmm. When, when Mike, it, you know, the blue is with Malone and Mike is with the red. What color is the matchbook? It's red. It's red. It's red. Like, mm-hmm. I never connected oh, that wow. this is an example of fantastic color control. And now it almost makes me want to watch the movie again and really just focus on color and <laughs> see what other things De Palma is doing, because I bet we would discover more stuff. 1634 Racine. You know, I used to have a friend who lived there. And, of course, Nitty pulls his gun and is backing away. And I love that Ness tells the bailiff, don't. Right. Yeah. But the bailiff doesn't don't. Yeah, yeah. He draws, right. gets shot, and now Ness change, chases Nitty up the stairs. I do hate that but moment when he's like, take it. He does Yeah, take it, take, take, it, take it, it, take it. I hate that I moment. I should have li- listened to you. It's like that old Eddie Murphy joke where he gets shot and he goes, go on without me in the movies. Like the, the, the yeah. fake getting shot. But in real life, you're like, ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, and we're, 
we're out on the rooftop uh and we got you know and and, and i love you know ness falls off the roof <laughs> oh my god yes, that is a great great movie. what a great trick to play on the audience yeah. right oh and nitty's co- the color choice for nitty is so great because he pops so so nicely mm-hmm. outside but there's also that great moment when he first pulls the gun he looks so small as he's backing away yeah. and being kind of surrounded by him like he kind of looks weak initially until he gets upstairs he's finally been caught yeah. He's finally right. been caught. Yeah, and and then him as he goes over the edge to look at you know Costner, and we think is Costner dead. That upshot of the you know like Nitty's white suit with the white clouds and that blue sky. It's just you know it's like why this evil person should not look this angelic. This is very very disturbing True. contrast. Yeah. You know, yeah. uh, and Ness who is has not fallen off the building. He's on some scaffolding. Shoots his hat off again. We're going through these low angles and high angles. Nitty gets to right. uh, the edge of the building, sees a rope, starts climbing down the rope, and now Ness has him dead to rights. Aim the gun at him. There's perfect. Uh, I know we mentioned it before on the show, but the line there's something called the line in filmmaking, which makes us aware of left to right directions. Mm-hmm. And generally, the rule is you don't cross the line because someone who is looking left to right is now suddenly looking right to left, and things would be confusing. He re- De Palma repeatedly crosses the line in the close ups to the trigger to make it sort of more jarring. Um, And this is this big moment. Is he going to shoot Nitty? The music is incredible. And then he chooses not to. And here's what I don't understand. Then Nitty smiles and he climbs back up. Why does he climb back up? Who? Nitty? Nitty. Because he knows that he's not going to shoot him and he's a cop. So the, uh, the, other choice is him, you know, falling to his death because he's not going to make it. That there's not oh, enough rope. Can't, he can't I thought make the, that I thought the drop was no. too high. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that the drop sense. is too and, high. And, yeah. And I think Nitty, you know, this goes back to our. T- I think Nitty thinks he is untouchable. Right. Right. Yes. Right. You know? And he knows he's a do-gooder, this cop, so he knows he's going to get out of it, and Capone's going to protect him. Yeah. And I, I don't know. I love if this might just be a happy accident of the location, but the fact that. All of this happens in this last section where there's all this ivy on the side mm. of the building. The contrast of that green just pops so good, you yeah. know, with the suit and everything. Well, it wasn't the ceiling in the room that we were just in. Wasn't that green as well? Yeah. I think yeah. it is. I, I, that's why I'm kind of going like, I bet there's more color stuff that we could figure out if we, if we went through it again. I'm not saying <laughs> we should, but no. we could. <laughs> I love the close-up of Costner, especially when they go extreme close up with the sky behind him too. He just has that great moment where he's real. You really see him weighing it. It's like, mm-hmm. am I going to shoot him? Am I not going to, you know, there it's, I don't know. It reminds me a little bit of the, of that moment after he shoots the, the bad guy in the cabin where he's, you can really see him kind of the weight of it on him. Right. You know, what do I do? They're going to burn you buddy. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to come see you, Bernie, you son of a bitch, because you killed my friend. And Nitty's response is, he died like a pig. What did you say? I said that your friend died screaming like a stuck Irish pig. Now you think about that when I beat the rat. The delivery of that line is so hurtful. Yeah. When I beat the rat. It's just so and, goddamn And he's combing his hair. And he's combing yeah. his hair. So Elliot Ness, who just decided not to shoot him, <laughs> makes a different choice. Did he sound anything like that? 
his death and Gruber's death are my two yeah. favorite 80s deaths because the they're both like he's like ah the close up of him like shocked as as he's hurtling through the sky that this is how he's going to die and of course the shock on on Rickman's face when they tricked him by letting that thing go it's just great great uh, both of them off a building as well have you done top 10 movie deaths no i don't think we have that could be fun Oh, that's it. We have to go lot. decade to decade. There's so <laughs> yeah. many. Yeah. Yeah. When Nitty hits that car, Oof. that looks like a real stunt man. You Oof. know, what I mean, it, I, I don't know what they did there. That's incredible. But there's a thing there in the final. We zoom in up on Costner, which is incredible. All these blue sky shots. Yeah. But then when we look down, there's something. The cinematographer talked about this a little bit, but apparently, there's a tremendous amount of repeated pattern work in this oh. film that they and and that shot in particular. It's this thing of because we're Nitty's not dead center in that shot. There's five cars mm. and he's in the last car and the cars are all pointed in the same direction. So our eye almost does a thing. If you read left to right, like, a you know, like a big chunk of the world, it's like it, your brain almost can't help but like go pattern, 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 break of pattern. And at the end of it is, is Nitty's body inside the broken mm. cinematography in this film is just, it's incredible. Yeah. By the way, uh, there was a real Frank Nitty. Yes. He did not die. No, he did not. <laughs> not only he went to jail right around the same time Capone did, got out in two years. He's the guy who took over the Chicago mob. Yep. And and if you want to do a little bit of crazy research, go and find the nineteen seventy-five or seventy-four TV movie of Capone where Ben Gazzara plays Capone. Sylvester Stallone plays Frank Nitty. What? It's so there's you can see it. There are clips. There are scenes on YouTube, and he goes to see Capone after Capone is nuts and crazy and sitting by his poolside with his robe open, and he comes back. I guess he's crazy. He's crazy. You know the, the whole thing. It's fantastic. Because yeah, Nitty. The the rumors were that Nitty set him up because Nitty wanted to take over and they didn't like that Capone was getting too big for his britches, uh, and so Nitty took over for a long time and he died like in his. 60s or 50s or something like that. So Elliot Ness is back inside. Reporters are all around. Stone is there and he pulls out that piece of paper from Nitty and it's all about bribing the jury. And that, see, uh, and then, Steve, that's such a great shot because it's like, it's as if Ness is sort of coming back from this strange place and it's all Ness's POV. Like Stone hmm. looks almost right at the camera like, hey man, you okay boss? You know, like, and then he hands him the, he hands him the list and the lit, you know, the list is like almost going right toward cam. You know, it's an interesting way back in, I think. Which, which by the way, when you do those shots where it's a POV, but a hand has to come in, hmm. it's always super awkward. And cause it's because you have to reach around a camera to bring your hand in. Right. So it never is placed in exactly the right place. It's always really hard to do. Um, and then we have the, what I will call the Arnold slash James Bond, line where is he he's in the car he's in the car he's in the car (laughs) well i think obviously that starts with connery and then that got you know arnold kind of brought that sort of joke back you know into the rest of the world or whatever but it's it's it feels appropriate with having connery in the film kevin costner does far more of a connery delivery than a arnold delivery in terms of true you know like making it work um, and now we're in the judge's chambers. We've handed in the list and the judge's response. This constitutes no evidence. And Ness kind of goes off. The case is that the man Capone is a killer and he will go free. There is only one way to deal with such men and that is hunt them down. 
I have forsworn myself. I have broken every law I swore to defend. I have become what I beheld, and I am content that I have done right. Now, that man must be stopped, and you must... I'll be the judge of what I must do, Mr. Ness. <laughs> I think telling a judge that you've broken a whole bunch of laws is not a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> Most of the time, yeah. Unless the judge has been breaking some laws himself. Well, and then that's what happens is Ness has to be alone with the judge. Uh, and again, we're in these low angles, man. When, when, when we're in low angles is when Ness is going to do heroic stuff. Yeah. And everyone goes out and he turns to the judge, walks up to him, still in these low angles. And then we cut back to the judge at the bench. Yeah, Costner has a plus five on his attack rolls when the camera is lower. <laughs> and that's why you are one of my geek buddies. <laughs> um, and now we're back out into the courtroom and the judge is there. Bailiff, I want you to go next door to Judge Hoffman's court where they've just begun hearing a divorce action. I want you to bring that jury in here and take this jury to his court. Which I don't think is legal. I don't think anybody can ever do that. What did you tell him? I told him his name was in the ledger, too. His name wasn't in the ledger. So clearly the judge was taking bribes, yep. but what didn't have records of it. Yep. And Ness gambled it, basically. And now Capone loses it. What's going on I over think here? That we I don't care one. what you think. Do something over here. What do I look no. like to you? Huh? Do something. Do something. <laughs> Order. Your Honor, we would like to withdraw our plea of not guilty and enter a plea of guilty. <laughs> that <laughs> makes no sense. I'm just going to say, like, there's no reason for the lawyer to say this at this moment without talking to, like, his mob boss client. <laughs> like, this is not a smart thing to do. I think it's the thought is that he feels like that they've lost and now their best chance is to try to bargain and, and make the best deal that 100%. they can, you know? Well, right. and I think it's like, look, we're at the end of the movie. Let's get to the end of the movie, you know, yeah, and right. this is going to be dramatic. I don't think it makes, I think it's fine, but doesn't make sense. <laughs> Capone punches his lawyer. The music is triumphant. And now we have almost like the mirror of the scene we saw in the hotel with a big crowd of people on Capone, a big crowd of yeah. people on Ness, them yelling at each other, reporters everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and they're pushing towards each other, people holding him back. Um, and then I love that they both drag their crowds forward enough to get in each other's faces. Never stop. Never stop fighting till the fight is done. What do you say? What do you say? I said never stop fighting till the fight is done. And what is the last thing that Ness sends to, says to Capone? Here endeth the lesson. Here endeth the lesson. camera pulls back and the music rises and there's just chaos capone was arrested for five thousand violations of the volstead act Ooh. which was for uh you know violating prohibition but the judge uh prevented indictment from coming to trial so basically there was a paid off judge so all of the stuff elliot ness did didn't get capone in jail the stuff that Frank Wilson did with tax evasion did. And on mm -hmm. October 17th, 1931, he was convicted on three of the 22 counts of tax evasion. So they really barely got him. I mean, if yep, they dismissed yes. all the bulls, so they only got him on three out of 33, you know. Yeah, yeah. And again, we cut from a very loud, very chaotic space to a very quiet space. And uh, we're with Ness and he's going through the headlines. And one of the things he sees is the picture of the four of them. Hmm. So much violence. And he opens up his drawer, and there's the St. Jude, and the music hits right there. Um, and he closes his hand on it. He takes off his holster and puts that in the briefcase, which I think is a really important moment. 
Mm-hmm. And then he turns to George and he says, this is goodbye. Right. Shake hands. It's laying down a sword. Exactly. I want to uh, thank you for this. No, thank you. He reaches into his pocket, Ness does, pulls out that St. Jude medal, and Stone doesn't want to take it. I think he would have wanted you to have that. He'd have wanted a cop to have it. And I love that they do the handshake handoff, you know? Yeah. I think it's a really good moment. And it's terrific. Oh. This is also the first time that Stone's wearing a suit in the whole film, too. So Ooh. it's really oh. it's passing the baton, you know? I didn't notice it. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, and he says, I'm going home, which is, what is the first job? To go home safe at the end of your shift. That Andy Garcia at the end, it's, man, when you can get a movie star on the way up in your film... You know what I mean? Like, like looking at it now, you realize it's like this guy's just bringing so much to every scene, even though he's given so little to do. Mr. Ness, any comment for the record? The man who put Al Capone on the spot. I just happened to be there when the wheel went round. Uh, They they say they're going to repeal prohibition. What will you do then? You go have a drink. And the camera pulls up and the music swells and then we fade out and we have reached the end of The Untouchables. And boy, is that last shot. I mean, it's a classic De Palma. We start low and then we pull up and boy, you can't do better than shooting in Chicago. By the way, this was not the original last shot of the movie. Originally, they decided they were going to shoot in jail. That's right. And they were going to have a parallel shot to the opening of Capone getting the shave. They were going to have a shot of him that's also a big top-down shot in jail. And they did multiple takes. Uh, De Palma didn't like it. And they said, and the producer's like, okay, I guess we got to come back tomorrow and do it again. And De Palma went, nope, we're not going to do it. It's not going to be in the movie. And they just abandoned it. Wow. Because um, he said, which I think is, again... One of the weird jobs of being a director is when to say, when to to pivot, mm-hmm. to make a change. This isn't working. Let's do something else. And Steve, you probably know this as a director. Organically, you hold on to a, a shot. You think it's oh, the yeah. most important thing. And then like the moment happens and the shots have all been done and you get to that shot and you're like, we actually don't need it. And you're cool just throwing it away because it logically makes sense. You don't hold on to it, you know, for dear life because organically you've come to that place where actually the shot doesn't matter. Steve, that's probably the experience of De Palma at this point, 15 years yeah. into his directing career, mm, you know, because right. 10 years before they probably do hang around and then he figures out in the cutting room that they don't need it. Whereas this time around, he's like, oh, you know what? This isn't working, you know? Yeah. It's so funny that you say that because that literally was what I was about to say is. Mm. That's why I had to I, say it first. Yeah. <laughs> for me, I don't have that experience with De Palma. I'm not De Palma. I have, for me, it's in the, in the editing room. In the mm-hmm. editing room, there'll be a scene. And frequently, it was my favorite line or my favorite moment. The reason I wrote the script. And then I'm in the editing room fighting and fighting to keep a scene in. And then I go, well, let's take it out. And as soon as it's out, it's like, oh, it's gone. Not only is it gone, and it's such a weird experience. But it's like, not only is it out of the movie, it's almost out of my perception of the film. Mm. Like, it's, it, 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 it's really hard up to the choice. And then you make the choice. I mean, I was just, and not to compare this in any way, but this little documentary that I was just making, you know, the first cut was an hour and 35 minutes. 
the version now is an hour and 11 minutes. Well, John, that's, and, a, that's a really interesting point because Steve said originally it was two hours and 35 minutes because it was <laughs> mostly on just me getting to the point. And then when Steve realized <laughs> that he could just sort of edit around me, he got it down to like 55 minutes and change. Well, what's so funny, I mean, it, it goes to this, the weird things about filmmaking is there are a lot of great lines from you, Steve, from you, John, that, that are that are on the and for me too i mean the person i cut the most out of is me mm. and it's not that there weren't good lines it's just that the movie is better without them mm. there's a flow there's a pace there's an energy and that's why i'm so impressed with the palma of day of shooting on the set with robert de niro and just says no yes we're yeah. not gonna no, move that, forward that's some confidence because you're like it would be very easy to go jesus it is de niro for god's sakes yeah. let's just let's just get it and see well and yeah. that speaks to that thing of I almost prefer the theatrical cut of it. As a nerd, it's enjoyable to see those extra scenes in Aliens or Alien or in Blade Runner or whatever. But generally, the theatrical cuts, which are almost always the leanest, are the ones that I like the most. You know, I, I, it, to me, to me, it's it's there are some where the the studio really did take it out of the director's hands. Mm-hmm. You know, where sometimes there's things that are lost. But I agree, most of the time, these director's cuts are. Stuff they're just trying to make more money by throwing some scenes that didn't particularly weren't necessary into the movie. Right. Yeah. So so by the way, so Capone was sentenced. Elliot Ness was one of the federal agents who took him to the train station to send him off to prison. Uh. And as far as anyone knows, that's the only time they were ever in each other's presence. <laughs> was Elliot Ness taking him to the train station? Wow. Capone was thirty three when he went to jail. Yep. Wow. That's just crazy to me. Um. And he had un- he had untreated syphilis, and mm. by the time he got to Alcatraz, he got he started to get really really sick. He spent his last year in Alcatraz in the hospital. He was released from prison in '39 for medical reasons. They just said, uh, you know, this guy's too he's not he's not going to be doing anything. He's really sick. Sick at the age of 46, he went to a doctor. The doctor said he had the brain of a 12 year old boy. Oh. He just completely the syphilis had completely rotted his brain. He died in 1947 at the age of 48. Yeah. Um, Elliot Ness, who, by the way, all the stuff about, I, you know, I don't take a drink and stuff. He was a major alcoholic. He drank throughout <laughs> Prohibition. Um, he went on after after this. He went on to go after moonshiners in Ohio and Kentucky and Tennessee. Then he worked to modernize police force and police practices. He ran for the male mayor of Cleveland in 1947. He lost. He also died really young. He died in 1957 at the age of 54. So mm-hmm. two years older than me from a massive heart attack. Wow. And his fame hit right after he died because his autobiography was published posthumously. And the TV series came right after that. He, so he never knew that he was going to be a famous person. Yeah. Um, uh, the reception of this film, it uh, grossed 106 uh million dollars it was nominated for four uh, academy awards music costume art direction all of which it lost to the last emperor that was the big last emperor year and connery is the only uh, uh, award that they won he by the way was up against albert brooks for broadcast news oh. morgan freeman for street smart vincent gardenia for moonstruck and denzel washington for cry freedom that's a murderer's row of actors to, to <laughs> go up against especially their perf- those those particular performances, performances. Yeah. yeah yeah wow um wow so uh shannon what are your final thoughts on the untouchables again this is a movie i i tie to 
really kind of graduating into cinema for grown-ups. Like this was this was the first movie that I think I said before, you know, I consciously made a decision to to sneak and, and watch in my in my house that, to watch an R-rated movie by myself in my house cautiously looking at the at the door the whole time waiting for mom and dad to come in and bust me. Um but and I and I had revisited revisited over the years and revisiting for this was such a pleasure. And yeah, I mean, I can't I can't recommend this movie enough if you haven't seen it. Steve, how about you? Similar to the, some of the stuff you talked about in your 200th episode, I think as I look at this, it makes me realize that the timing of when this came out is around the time where I'm starting to realize that I like movies in a different, more intense way than a lot of my friends. And probably in that summer of high school, everyone saw this movie and it was a very popular film. But I was seeing things in this movie that I don't think that a lot of my friends were seeing. And it was starting to wake up that part of my brain that was getting really interested in storytelling. And it was really, really fun to because I watched it obsessively probably back then, but I haven't watched it in a while. And it was a real pleasure to revisit it because it makes me realize just how damn good it is. I, I think this is De Palma's Raiders. And it mm. might, you know, like, in, in a, and I think it sometimes it proves that thing of, Sometimes you're better when you're still in that place when you're in a great part of your game, but suddenly like a lot of restrictions are put on you in terms of budget, in terms of other different stuff. And suddenly you're having to deal with a studio. Sometimes that can actually make you better than worse, all those added restrictions, you know. And Mm. I think De Palma kind of came into this film very hungry. He'd had a few failures after a string of successes. And I think I think he kind of this sort of turbocharged him for the next aspect of his career. I think there's an argument that this might be his best film. It's certainly in his top three, I would say, you know, Uh, I definitely put it in his top three. So as I said, for for whatever reason, this hasn't been a movie that I go back to. I just, there's so many great things about it that I'm not quite sure why in, in the eighties, when I first saw it, I liked it, but didn't love it. And it didn't feel like a movie I needed to see over and over again. And now even just like talking about the color control that sort of hit me just at the end of our conversation, I'm like, man, there is so much to study here. And De Palma is an interesting filmmaker. And I think it makes a lot of sense that he's so connected to Hitchcock because he's at his best in this genre element. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He's it, it, when he can use all of his incredible skill of moving the camera around and all of his incredible ideas to build tension. That's where he's killing it. Yeah. Um, and I think there's just so much great thing to great stuff to study in this film. John, what about you? Look, this is one that I just, uh, you know, uh, Shannon said it, um, grown up filmmaking. I remember this one hit me around that eighties time. And, you know, the people sometimes forget and they get lost in like Raiders or Back to the Future or all these other really fun, nerdy, geeky uh, stuff or even the John Hughes movies. But there was some incredible, epic, classic filmmaking happening in the 80s as well. And this is one of those films. Uh, this is one of those films that just feels like it belongs in the 1940s and 50s. And that's because of the effective job, the great job that uh, the cinematographer did, Brian De Palma did, people involved in the production, the set design, the costume design, everything just all came together 
This was a classic film happening in the 1980s, and it's so uh, well executed by everybody involved, and the acting is so stellar. And as Steve Jones said earlier, you've got movie stars on the come up. You've got movie stars being reborn. You've got great character actors involved in this, scenes that are memorable, lines that are still quotable almost four decades later. Uh, and as a film that if it, if it hits you, it will hit you and stay with you. Even if you don't see it for like 20 years, you'll still remember elements of this movie uh, that affect you or, or um, I don't know, or moved you when you were watching it. And it still does it for me. And I've seen it. I've seen it in London. I've seen it in, in Vienna. I've seen it in America. I've seen it just about anywhere I can be. I've seen it in every format. And it was a joy to dive into it as deeply as we did over these last two episodes, for sure. So that's what we think of The Untouchables. Of course, we always want to hear what you think. You can follow us on our Facebook page. Just search for The Cinephiles. You can support the show by going to patreon.com slash The Cinephiles, where we have all sorts of uh, special stuff, including Cinephile shorts that we put out just about every single week. If you want to buy The Untouchables or stream it through Amazon Prime, you can go to cinephiles.net. Um, please subscribe to the show on wherever you subscribe to things on iTunes or YouTube or Spotify. By the way, it's been so we're right at the end of the year and everyone's been sending us these uh, Spotify had sent out. This is what you listen to most. And we've gotten so many of the cinephiles is the number one podcaster. I listened to 320 hours of the cinephiles this year or things like mm. that. It's been so fun to see all that stuff. Um, so please subscribe to the shows there. Uh, if you are on YouTube, leave your reviews on YouTube. And if you happen to be on YouTube right now, we just put up our much delayed 200th episode documentary where you can see all of our faces talking about the origins of the cinephiles and also uh, uh, how all of us came to love movies and what it means to us to be a cinephile. Um, as always, you can follow me on Twitter at SR Morris, on Instagram at SR Morris1. John, how about you? You can always find me at the Roca Says on Twitter and on Instagram and come on over to my YouTube channel as well, youtube.com slash John Roca Says. And yes, the 200th episode documentary gives Steve all the love that you can give for his amazing hmm. work putting that together. It was a lot of time he put into that thing and it turned out incredible. Uh, well, th well, thank you, John. That's great. Yeah. Shannon McClung, thank you so much. It's been so great having you on, your show, on the show to talk about this great film. Uh, and if people wanted to reach you on the internets, how would they do that? Yeah, if you'd like to follow me on Twitter, it's at Shannon underscore McClung on Instagram at Shannon the Geek Buddy. You can also find me every week, usually, um, with Mr. John Roca on the Geek Buddies. It is it is a fantastic uh, show, and one of my oldest geek buddies is Stephen B. Jones. Mm. Stephen, thank you for coming back on the show. So nice to have you. If people wanted to reach you or follow your work, how would they do that? Thank you guys for having me on. I am Stephen B. Jones on Instagram. And uh, or my, if you want to just look at my work on my website, that's Stephen B. Jones cartoonist.com. Absolutely. You should check that out. And I think that's it for this week. We will see you next week for another great film on the cinephiles. <laughs> <laughs>